Blank check with Griffin and David. Blank check with Griffin and David. Don't know what to say or to expect. All you need to know is that the name of the show is Blank Check. On the first day of Christmas, my true love sent to me a podcast in a pod tree. <laughs> On the second day of Christmas, my true love sent to me two podcast doves and a podcast in a pod tree. I did this to myself. I did. On the third day of Christmas, my true love sent to are. me. Three podcasts, two podcast doves, and a podcast in a pod tree. I, I, this song doesn't have anything to do with a Christmas carol, right? Just, just checking. I don't actually. On the no, third day of Christmas, it's a carol. It's a Christmas carol. It's a Christmas carol. Three podcasts, three podcasts, two podcast doves, Wait. and a podcast Wait. in a pod tree. I'm sorry, you you turned calling birds into podcasts. That's it. <laughs> There's the so much more you can do with calling Christmas, birds. My true love sent to me. Five podcasts. Four podcasts. Three podcasts. Two podcast doves. And a podcast in a pod tree. This is uh, oh. why you guys are the in the lead for the Peabody this year, right? Like this is this is the yeah. reason. Yeah, yeah, the, the OB is no longer in our sights. We want the Peabody. On the sixth day of Christmas, <laughs> my true love sent to me six pods of casting, five podcasts. Oh, boy. Four podcasts. This is three making me podcasts, like the movie two more. Podcast tubs, you know, and possible. a podcast in a pod tree. Podcasts do win Peabody Awards. I am they looking at they have yeah. They have a whole category. <laughs> for it. You should submit to the Peabody's and uh, submit this episode. Yeah. All right. On the All right. seventh We're day it. of Christmas, my making a no right now. Sent to me. Submit to Peabody. Seven pods of casting, six pods of casting, five podcasts. Four podcasts, Wow, the harmony, right. the harmony is there. <laughs> okay. So we got right. to seven. We got to Swans of Swimming, which I believe you yeah. put as pods of casting. Is that right? Correct. And no, we got to eight. Excuse me. We got to eight. And so Maids and Milken, which you put as uh, pods of casting, am I right? No, actually, David, I'm sorry. That was a, a, a visit from the Ghost of Bits future. I hadn't gone to it yet. Here it is. <laughs> On the eighth day of Christmas, my true love sent to me eight pods of casting, seven pods of casting, six pods of casting, five podcasts. Four podcasts, Four podcasts three, podcasts, pod three podcasts, podcasts, two, two podcasts, podcasts and, and a podcast in a pod tree. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Ho 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 Merry Blank Check. Good. Good. <laughs> 
This is our. Is no, appropriate. I was, Very good. I was going to say this is our last episode before Christmas, but it isn't. It's two weeks before Christmas, right? Um, no. it's December thirteenth. So, but yeah. you know, it's the season. Tis right. the season, as they say. Tis, tis the season to be casting. Yeah, I mean, you gotta make, you gotta get flight in before Christmas. Like that's right. that's flight, important. Flight, yeah. right? Flight will be our actual Christmas episode. We're yes. we're landing the flight right before Christmas. Our plan, for the time being, tentatively, is to roll it. I should mention that <laughs> we're gonna See, roll it. I've never it. seen flight. Is that a reference to flight? Yeah, I feel like we're going to roll it for a brief period of time was up there with the duly appointed federal marshals and we're going to get over on all these guys. It's got to be the best we ever did. Am I wrong, great, Emily? Like, we're go- we're going to roll it was line. a pretty major trailer line for a little bit there. Oh, yeah. If you saw any movie in, like, right. 2012, you heard you're gonna we're gonna roll it yeah but the answer is david is mortified of planes and he probably covered his eyes every time the trailer came up <laughs> yeah i mean I, I know that the plane is upside down or something I we're gonna roll that it we're gonna roll right, it right right and i know goodman is involved and then they're in, in maybe in congress or something there's some sort of hearing at some point that's david, all i really know look you're gonna see the movie very soon it's the next episode we're recording obviously And I don't want to spoil anything for you, but I just want to say the movie might finally answer whether or not John Goodman's character has sympathy for the devil. I'm trying to be (laughs) as oblique here as possible, but the movie might provide an answer as to whether, and it, it might be pretty clear. Yes, and I'll go in with that now. I have no idea what you're yeah. talking about, but that sounds uh, when I when I was here to talk about Alice in Wonderland, um, mm. we talked about planes a lot, and flight mm. is part of the planes expanded universe. So yes, right. and we yeah. talked about the Pixar. Well, not Pixar, but the, the yeah. Pixar Disney tunes, right? Yeah, yeah. Disney, right. The Disney planes, planes, right? Planes, yes. fire. It's planes, then planes, fire and rescue, and then planes. We're going to roll it, aka flight. <laughs> It was retitled Flight in America. In Europe, it was released as Planes, Colon, We're Gonna Roll It. We're Gonna Roll It. They should bring back planes and put something in it. Look, we can't talk about planes again. Wait a second. If we already did a planes bit, we gotta, we gotta flex our muscles. We gotta do something new here. If, uh, if, if yeah. they told me that Sully played a plane in Planes 3, I, I would... I yeah. would see it. You, you I w- going. Not only that, I'd, I'd see it in theaters during COVID. I would <laughs> go to a public screening during COVID if they were like, surprise, third plane movie, and Sully has one scene. I just ta- I just brought up airplanes so I could mm. open the door just to crack and dangle a little sign that said Sully through the door and see if you took right. the bait and you right. performed marvelously. Thank you, boys. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we're, we're, we're pretty easy marks, I would say. Yeah. Uh, it, by this point, people will have heard our Castaway episode where Nia DaCosta in real time tries to interrogate us on whether or not the Sully thing is a bit the way our... <laughs> Reddit has been trying to do for the last five years. That movie is very good. It is not a bit. It's not a bit. I I swear to God, it's a great movie. She did. She also goes in on, you know, Clint Eastwood's whole, you know, concrete and fluorescent lighting, you know, 2010s oeuvre, but whatever. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Not wrong. Sully rules. Um, But this is a a holiday episode of Blank Check, a podcast about filmographies, directors who have massive success early on in their career and are given a series of blank checks to make whatever crazy passion projects they want. And sometimes those checks clear and sometimes uh, ho, 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 they bounce, baby. 
this is a mini series on the films of Robert Zemeckis, uh, the notorious Bobby Z. And today we're talking about mm. a Christmas movie, the, a Christmas Carol, the movie that forced him into early retirement as a mocap filmmaker. Yes. Is that, did he admit that? Did he say like, okay, I took it as far as it could go? Or what did he say like, they just cost too much money and they stopped letting me do it? David, we're going to get into it because I think there's an element here that you're forgetting, but we will unpack it. Our guest today. Sure, yes. By popular demand. And I should make it clear. She is always a much demanded guest for turn appearances by our listeners. But in this case, as demanded by herself to come on to speak about this movie. We, in an early episode of this miniseries, said, what the fuck are we going to do for that episode? We're going to be so burnt out on these mocap things by that point. Who wants to talk about that? And zing! Right in the inbox. An email that took many months for me to actually respond to. Yes. Mm -hmm. I thought I had offended someone. I was like, oh, well, it won't happen. But, you know. No, here's, here's what's happened. I've gotten to a point where I can no longer distinguish between things I've done and things I've thought about doing. Yes. Mm-hmm. Fair. True for all of us. I, I lie in bed every night and I go, have I not brushed my teeth or have I done it three times in the last 10 minutes? And I don't know. And sometimes I get up and do it a fourth time. And sometimes I don't do it at all. Um, Emily Vanderworth, the great, from Vox, from the National Fodderwacken Championships. <laughs> Of 2018. I, I think won. that's when you I won. won. Yeah. I think I won that was your year, though, right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. yeah. Um, thank you so much. It's so good to be here. And, I Go ahead. And s- self-proclaimed Christmas fanatic. That's the key detail yes. I want to throw out here as I open up yes. a can of Christmas Budweiser. <laughs> it's it's a late night wow, record. Christmas bud. It's a boring movie. I felt like it was time to drink some Christmas Bud on mic. I got a Christmas green tea right here, my friend. Okay, okay. I got a Christmas yes. butt. But Emily, you're a big Christmas fan and you're a big Christmas Carol fan, correct? Yes, yes. I feel as though uh, me appearing on a Christmas edition of Blank Check is like mm. a prophecy somewhere. Like somewhere in like a temple somewhere, there's like a man who's like saying, oh, he saw this drop into his Spotify feed and he says, oh, prepare the heralds because like right. he's just fucking ready for it. Um, but yeah, I love this. I love this story. I love Christmas um, as David can attest going back many years. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm so happy to be here and so happy to be talking about one of the ugliest movies ever made. I, Emily, here's, it's truly this, ugly. This is the headline for me because we've, we've watched two of these uglies, three of these uglies in a row I'm going to okay? agree with what you're about to say, I think. I think I, think I know what you're going to say and I agree. I don't know if I'm going to say what you think I'm about to okay. say. My All point right. is, we, we've been bumping uglies three weeks in a row, right? We have. Just we have. straight uglies in, uh, in this, in this uh, run. You thought I was about to say this is the best looking of the three? No. no. Okay, because Beowulf's the best looking of the three, right? I, I thought you were about to say this is the worst looking of the three, and I y- agree, y- to my s- astonishment. I think Polar Express is the worst looking of the three, but but it is astonishing that this movie is so boring that that quality overrules how ugly looking it is. Like, we kind of like Beowulf, but, like, but of course you have to admit this thing looks like garbage. We hate Polar Express, and we're like, and of course it has to be admitted. A huge part of that is that it looks like garbage. And this, I could talk for two hours about how boring it is before I really start unpacking how ugly it looks. Um, yeah, I, 
I think that at least Polar Express is a train. I think a train looks better in this because it's metal. I think I think yes. this is a world geared towards metal. You know, I think mm-hmm. all of Zemeckis' mocap movies should have been about metal people and things. Yes. And it's just when you bring skin into the game, you're in trouble. And that's why I will pick Polar Express over A Christmas Carol, both as a movie and as a thing to look at anyway. I'll say this too. I mean, obviously... Uh, Polar Express is, uh, you know, working with earlier stages of technology. It's it's at a disadvantage in yeah. that way. But from a design standpoint, Polar Express is a, a thousand percent more aesthetically pleasing than this movie. And Polar mm. Express is not an aesthetically pleasing movie. <laughs> this is true. Emily, I've known you for 20 years. I don't know yes. if you've you've done the math in your head, but I've basically known you for 20 years. This is true. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um. D- I, Do you remember I, what the Oscar season was when the two of you I would say met on the message boards? Um, you know, probably the 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 Return of the King season. Yeah, right? it was I, Ret- it was Is Return of it? the King. It okay. was Return of the King. Okay. Yeah. I I came in and made a big splash with my uh, winged did. migration uh, signature yes. and my message. Board. Yes, wow. we're all in on winged migration. That's right. <laughs> I, uh, it said, uh, FYC, the goose, best supporting actor yes, was I trying that. to make an impression. And, uh, yeah. And I, was, and I was like, David, you're so cool. And you're like, I'm just some, and I was like, oh, he's just some 15 year old kid. From- That's who I was. A cool 15 yeah. year old on an Oscar message board. But, but Emily, th- this is also bore out that you have discovered a lot of uh, our, our friends, but people who have become incredible uh, writers at different outlets across the mm-hmm. land. Uh, you you had a real eye for talent, you know, recognizing mm-hmm. young people on message boards who had the passion and the mm-hmm. skill set and like giving them their first jobs. You know, Frankie falls into that category as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, pilot, so, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, Sonia yeah. Soraya. Um, Sonia. Emily- Emily Yoshida, I, uh, you know, these are people who I they right. had like tumblers, and I just was like, "This is a good tumbler." And at the time, no, like nobody was was hiring women for these jobs, and yeah. I so the AV Club just had a whole bunch of women, and it turned out I was a woman, and then we had David, so that was great. <laughs> and I now work at the Atlantic Culture Section, which is eight <laughs> women and me and Spencer. <laughs> But but also, um, I mean, if if you if you hadn't extended opportunities to so many people, uh, this podcast would not exist. Sure, that's true. I wouldn't okay. have met David. No, don't we, think we wouldn't so. have had any guests. Who who are would our guest pool have been? This is true. Have you been on Oscar Watch lately? I know it has a new name now. It's it's had like many names. I haven't. I haven't in a long time. Neither um, have uh, I. Yeah. Until. Yeah. Just and I'm sorry to to start on this really arcane ship, but whatever. It's the to. Christmas we Carol episode. We have um, to. I I watched the film Hillbilly Elegy. I was provided. Oh God. Uh, <laughs> I've seen it too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, which is not a good movie, and and no. by this point it's come out, and I imagine it's been mostly savaged by critics and mm. whatever. You know, it's out there, and I didn't review it, but I did. <laughs> f- foolishly i will say just sort of out of boredom put it at like the bottom of my 2020 list on letterboxd just as like mm. a joke or maybe not like bottom bottom but like in you know right at the right at the bottom right mm-hmm. does that make you know you guys know what i'm talking about yeah mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. andy scott shout out to andy scott <laughs> uh 
who Emily knows, my old roommate, uh-huh. and uh, uh-huh. another Oscar watcher, emailed me and was like, "You have like lit a torch on the on the message on the Oscar <laughs> watch, whatever it's awards daily, whatever it's called now, and it has exploded. Like people are like, David Sims put it up the bottom. This thing's going to be a catastrophe. And apparently, there's Amy Adams stands, <laughs> and they're all freaking out. So that's that's the update I got from the message boards. But but how long ago was that? I feel like the word has been out uh, uh, with read this thing being uh, yeah. toxic for a little while now. I mean, whenever I saw it, like when would that have been? Let's see now. I can look at my diary. You know, some uh, mid-November, right? It wasn't like four years crazy ago. long ago. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> it's a bad movie. Uh, you know what? You know what? It was all the way back in October. Okay. They gave it to um, me really early. It's worse than a Christmas Carol, Hillbilly Elegy. It it's yeah. worse than a Christmas Carol. <laughs> yeah. There's wow. no question. It's it's working off way worse material. To be fair, <laughs> I mean, a Christmas Carol, you're yeah. working off Dickens. Huh. Well, True. wait a second. That's an interesting question. Let's dig into this. Which do we think is a better original text? Charles Dickens' classic <laughs> Christmas tale. <laughs> A story that has endured for centuries has lost zero potency. There's a right. reason we keep on returning to it. B- basically helped invent the ghost story. Or right. uh, J.D. Vance's <laughs> <laughs> cheap hackery, the hillbilly hmm. elegy. It's tight. Um, it's tight. I don't I don't wanna I don't wanna put my foot down for it either and then you know, have this age poorly. When do you think Zemeckis is going to do the mocap hillbilly elegy? Because oh, this is a story should. that's going to be told over and over and over again, I think. Yes, absolutely. He needs to make it metal and he needs to make every character a Terminator and then it'll work. <laughs> there's a Terminator monologue. <laughs> Sounds good. In which, Nemo, they, in which Glenn Close refers to yeah. good, bad, and neutral Terminators. And there's no such thing as neutral Terminators. No. I don't know what she's talking about. They're very no. sort of good, bad. They, they really are kind of an on-off switch kind of thing. Excuse <laughs> me. There's good, bad, and then there's Terminator 3 Rise of the Machines where sure, Arnold's Terminator character has a slight malfunction and sometimes he turns bad briefly. Well, right, but he's not really neutral. It's not no, like he's, he's like, I am a no. centrist. No, <laughs> neutral. <laughs> neutral fundamentally doesn't exist. I guess like the real Arnold Schwarzenegger is something of a neutral at this point, but let's not let's not get into Yeah. The point I wanted to make is please. Emily, I I have known you 20 odd years and I've always known you as someone who loves Christmas. That that's yes. that, you know, I like Thank from you. the beginning it's been a big part of your brand, a yeah. love of Christmas. Yeah. We once cooked up a Santa Claus show together. Mm-hmm. Um, which Wait, like a, like a Santa Claus TV show? Yes. Yep. Mm-hmm. Emily asked me to pitch, like, was it a sitcom or is it, you know, a, a, like, it was a sitcom. Me, like, yeah, like yeah. a weekly sitcom about Santa Claus. I can, I can, I can, um, I can, uh, uh, Remember the exact premise that you came up with because it was Please very good. Tell me, because uh, you'll, you'll probably do it better than I did. This was at the height of My Name is Earl. Uh, so <laughs> David like pointed to My Name is Earl and said, "We need a show like that where there's like a like a concrete goal." So it was about Santa on the other 364 days of the year. It was 364 episodes. Each one was uh, a new day in a year of Santa between Christmas Eves. And uh, the show was called, this is long before Keeping Up with the Kardashians. It was called Keeping Up with the Clauses. Wow. Uh, I remember that. So, I remember that. Yeah. So David uh, invented Keeping Up with the Kardashians. The, the only wow. other thing I remember is that Santa has a new wife because Santa is immortal, but I, I decided that his wives are not, that he's like 
Javier Bardem and mother, like they, they die and then he just gets a new one. Right. Yes, this and is so, true. And so I was so, cause I thought it'd be funny, like a sitcom. It's like Santa would be like a fat guy with a beard and he would have this like improbably attractive, you know, 28 year old wife played by like a young ingenue who's now stuck on this sitcom. But like, They'd, he'd still love her, you know. It, it would be it would be tender. It's just that you would have the anyway. That I thought that was funny. Yeah. It's funny yeah. that that was a trend for a little bit. The like, here's the, the premise of our show. According it's finite. To Jim, There's right, a like, hard yeah. oh, end. Yes. No, no, not that thing. Yeah, of course, right. that, you're talking that, about my name is Earl, right, David? That premise is evergreen. We'll never get tired of that premise. But, <laughs> but the like, my name is Earl. Thing. According to Jim, right. right? The show is literally like crossing items off a list. There's a built-in <laughs> ending for it. And the ending is only a scant 180 episodes away. Like those <laughs> premises where it was like, here's a, we have to end at this point. And that point is nine seasons. <laughs> I, I, I figured out, I'm, I'm actually going to figure it out again, uh, how long uh, keeping up with the clauses would run. And it's 16 and a half seasons. So that's like how long you need. <laughs> To do keeping up with the closets. That thing will sell. That thing will be in syndication forever. You'll make millions. That's me talking to ABC in 2005 or whatever. (laughs) Is there a talking reindeer? Oh, yeah. That's a great idea. Yes, there has to be a talking reindeer. Bobcat Goldthwait. Yeah, as Rudolph or as Prancer, I, I don't know. I almost made David do a spit take. I was so close. He caught it. He swallowed really fast. Remember how My Name is Earl was a huge hit? Like, yeah. And like The Office was, it was like eating The Office for breakfast on that yeah. like Thursday block. And then it, it kind of, I guess people just kind of got sick of it. I don't know what happened to My there's Name. This, it, there's it, this super weird phenomenon of single camera sitcoms from the late 2000s, early 2010s, where they debut huge. They're big for 13 episodes and then people just inexplicably stop watching them. New Girl was another example. I was going to say New Girl is like the last one of those where when it started, I was like, oh, this is like the biggest comedy on television. This is the new friends. And by the end of season one, I was like, I guess it's now just become a niche thing. But tell me how many seasons New Girl ran for. Seven? New Girl ran for seven. Yeah, seven. Yeah. Yeah. My mm-hmm. name is Earl. Only got four, and apparently mm-hmm. ended on a cliffhanger that was yep, never yeah. resolved. It's yeah, still because on that list. they promised Greg Garcia that he was going to uh, be able to finish the story the way he wanted, and then sure. he was not allowed to finish the story the wow. way he wanted. So, what is Greg Garcia doing now? Because he did, then he did Raising Hope, which I loved. I was yeah. a big fan yeah, of that. That show. was a good show. He did Raising Hope. Yeah. He did. He did the guest book on TBS. Right, which is a very weird show. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, do not know what that is, but that's cool. It's a, it's a comedy anthology series about the people who sign a guest book and a vacation property, and each season is a new vacation property. Here I am, sitting on a fucking mountain of gold with my yeah. Santa Claus sitcom, and people are like, I don't know, let's do a show about guest books? Like, they're just, like, looking around the room at the, like, you know, ski lodge, and they're like, ah, could we do, like, a table sitcom? No, that's ridiculous. Uh, guest books? Guest books? We'll do guest books. I forgot. Greg Garcia also did The Millers, the CBS that sitcom that ran for 34 episodes. Will Arnett, Margot Martindale, Bo Bridges, J.B. Smoove, Gemma Mays, Nelson Franklin, Sean Hayes. Yep. Yep. It was it's a, uh, it's a big cast. It yeah. was supposed to be the, the next big thing and uh, it just didn't happen. Uh, Greg Garcia. He, Greg Garcia is like somebody who always has a show that seems like it's going to be huge for a yep. little bit. 
He's and a then pro, it just yeah, clearly. just completely yeah. He did I'll Yes say, Dear, I think. Yes, he did. That was his thing, and then yeah, like that he, was he his came whole, from Yes Dear. Yes, mm-hmm. but like my name is Earl was like, look, I know I created Yes Dear, but this is my actual sensibility. I remember there was such a press tour of him being like, but that's not the kind of show I grew up watching. Right. Mm-hmm. This is my my actual interest, and yeah. then made himself sort of like the the more quirky guy. I also feel like in my my 10 years of doing pilot season or whatever, almost every season there's a big Greg Garcia pilot at CBS that's like the cool one that then doesn't get picked up. And several times he has the show that's really hyped up. Everyone's fighting to get cast in. It doesn't go. And then they bring it back the next season and try it again. And then it still doesn't go. Yeah, and the premise is always like, what if a middle schooler was a superhero, but also yes. a nurse? And you're oh, just like, Emily, what? I wanted to be in that one so badly. <laughs> Unsurprisingly. <laughs> Super Clyde! Oh, I wanted to be in that I, one. I, I have two more things to say about Greg Garcia, and then we can talk about A Christmas Carol. One, or we can apparently, yeah. or we, yeah, or whatever, or yeah. whatever you guys want to talk about. <laughs> apparently, <laughs> Greg Garcia in 2008, Alec Baldwin accused him of being a Scientologist, I guess because Jason Lee is one. Like, I don't think he yeah. had anything more. And, and Greg Garcia was like, I'm not a Scientologist. Like, he had to issue a statement. He was like, I'm like a Catholic. Like, wow. Two, he did the book to the a musical Escape to Margaritaville, which was the Jimmy right. Buffett yep. jukebox musical that I don't think ever made it. No, I guess it did. No, go it, to did, it did make it, it ran to Broadway. Broadway. briefly. It ran a Broadway. Briefly. Yeah. Right. yeah, yeah, They, uh, oh, I believe, go. I believe they extended the run of Escape to Margaritaville in Los Angeles, which rarely happens here because you know not a huge theater town, but a big Escape to Margaritaville town. Big, so. big parrot head town. Yeah. That I almost wonder if it was like built into the budget of Escape from Margaritaville that opening on Broadway was a loss leader just to get the prestige of it played on Broadway. Because it's like you have yeah. to imagine the ultimate life of that show is on cruise ships. You know? Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Uh, here, here's a, a line of questioning I want to get into, Emily. Because uh, we start digging into this a little bit on our um, uh, Polar Express episode, um, where uh, The Sims grew up uh, sans Christmas, largely. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, in our contact episode, we talked about like our relationships to faith and religion a lot. And most of us grew up pretty a-religious. I grew up with a sort of very perfunctory uh, Judaism. My parents being like, "I guess we should teach our children this stuff." But they had completely abandoned that pretty much by the time my sister was around. Right. Um, but you you had a very religious upbringing. And you've written a lot about your relationship to that as time has gone on and how it's changed and morphed and all of that. And so I want to know sort of where Christmas fits into all of that, how much value Christmas has for you uh, is in tied to the religious traditions of it and how much of it is tied to what I still find very effective about Christmas, which is essentially just like movie Christmas. Like I yeah. fucking love movie Christmas and lights in New York and food mm. with weird wrappings and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting because I grew up 
doing kind of the secular Christmas, but mostly very religious Christmas. When I was three, my mom took me aside and said, there is no Santa Claus, but also your dad is Santa Claus. And I was like, oh, cool. That's awesome. Good for him. You married Santa Claus? Mom, that (laughs) rules. (laughs) Um, Which she was saying, you know, because like when you get a gift from Santa, that's actually from your dad. But uh, I was three, so I didn't entirely understand that. Um, But yeah, I grew up with super religious Um, I remember very specifically, there was a Christmas service at my church that ended with the pastor being like, and we have this recording of hell that I'm going to play for you now. And uh, yeah, because yeah, it it was was saying like, we got a microphone in and this this is this is is a famed story in evangelical Christian circles that a bunch of uh, Soviet scientists dug a hole uh, yes. to the center I, I'm of the aware earth. Of this story, dropped yes, a yes. microphone. I didn't know down, it was yeah. evangelically yeah. embraced as well. Yeah. Is it's this sort true? of like a weird urban legend. It's uh, <laughs> oh my god, this is hardcore. <laughs> so they 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 genuinely presented it as like a scientific mm-hmm. breakthrough. We finally yeah. have captured we, audio of hell. We've audio of hell, and it's on the internet. If you want to go look for it, it sounds like a mall food court slowed oh, way I down. Um, like it's yeah uh emily it's i'm just wild. gonna i'm just gonna stop you for a second if ben's looking particularly despondent it's because he had been working on trying to create the first ditch podcast he thought he was gonna be the first person to stick a microphone in a dirt hole and just record it for two hours I'm and so, so upset. damn this it. is a big this is a major hit for him i will i will say that the the hole that they actually dug that which was a forty thousand foot hole Whoa. Uh, is called the the Cola Super Deep Borehole, which is a yep. pretty good name. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and it really, it was like an experiment of like, what happens if we just dig really far? <laughs> well, I'm just you, amused. You, know, you, give, you give people fodder for stories about having recordings of hell. So yeah, we would, yeah. we would go to church and it would be like, and they're teaching children about Santa Claus. And like, that would be presented as like, we were losing jesus from the center of the season or whatever yeah and then you know i i went off to college and uh, i eventually moved to california and i realized i really started to miss winter like Mm -hmm. i missed snow i missed i missed really what i missed was new york christmas which i had not experienced to that Mm -hmm. point but like now have been language emily yeah Yeah. now have been several times and i'm like oh this is this is like the ideal city for christmas um Los Angeles is kind of depressing because they do this thing at the Grove, which is our big shopping mall. That's like, they just send foam into the air and it's supposed to be snow. And I took my wife to that and she was just despondent the whole way back because it's (laughs) so disturbing and gross. Um, But then the first year we were in California, um, somebody on Christmas Eve, like had gone up to the mountains and gotten a giant pile of snow and just put it in the parking lot of our apartment complex. And that felt like, you know, like Christmas to me. So I started to get more into secular, you know, Christmas music, Christmas uh, bullshit, basically, and watching every Christmas movie, every Christmas special I could find. And that sort of became a weird obsession. So that's why I'm here. But but I like I'm very much all in on all of that stuff. And I grew up with Christmas being devoid of any religious meaning. But I also grew up in New York where Christmas feels very romantic. Mm-hmm. So just like Christmas flavored things and mm-hmm. Christmas albums, and Christmas movies and specials. I get very caught up in it. Uh, I, I will feel very depressed uh, going through this Christmas without there being like the, the Christmassy vibe in the same sort of way. Aside from right. the fact I'm probably not going to celebrate anything with my family. It's also just like. 
things like the the outdoor sort of like market at Union Square, Rockefeller Center, the Rockefeller Center, sticky bandits, wet bandits, (laughs) stuff like this. (laughs) Have you seen this Rockefeller Center tree? It's bad. I mean, the little little if this isn't a metaphor for 2020, I mean, if 2020 (laughs) was a tree. Yeah, it'd be like really tall, it though. but have a wait. Yeah, is the tree wearing a face mask? Is that what they did? No, it just looks really shitty. It's just <laughs> kind of a weird, <laughs> shitty tree. I, I, yeah, I don't really get bad. it because I think there's like a whole process where they like you know there's people grow big trees. You we know? saw they showed the picture of it when they cut it down, and it's literally the how it started, how it's going meme applied to 2020. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like because it was beautiful when they cut it down, and now it's just like all crap. So. I, I mean, I just looked at the photo and I, I, my immediate thought was, oh, the, the tree guy couldn't get out of bed either, huh? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, dude, I get it. Major feeling. Yeah. Big I, mood. Uh, the, the first time I was ever on this show was because uh, it was uh, Christmas 2016 and I went to New York specifically because I was like, well, there may, there may never be another Christmas, so I'd better go to New York and have one more Christmas there. Uh, right. And we made it. Sort of. <clears throat> we made it. We made yeah. it. Um, wow. We'll talk about full full circle. So, no. so you love you love Christmas media. I do as well. Uh, I feel like I'm such a sap for Christmas that even stuff I'm cynical about usually activates me in some way. Mm-hmm. And I honestly feel like Polar Express and A Christmas Carol, Disney's A Christmas Carol might be two of the only Christmas movies I've ever seen that stir no feelings of Christmas cheer in me. I will, I'll even say this. I agree with that. I ended up hearing, I made this gigantic Christmas playlist on Spotify that, I made this gigantic Christmas playlist on Spotify that anyone could contribute to. And somebody put Sylvester's Christmas Carol score on there. And I just heard it sans the movie and was like, this is great. This is great Christmas music. And in the movie, it just gets buried by whatever the hell is going on. Makes zero impression. I know it's a good score. It's a totally, as you say, fine work on its own. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is, um, yeah, this is just, I watched uh, a few years ago, like every version of Christmas Carol I could get my hands on. And this is by far one of the worst, which is this story is really hard to screw up. Like yeah. the reason that it's boring is because the underlying story is always pretty good, but yeah. <laughs> it, it, do you have a go-to pick for what you think the best adaptation is or the, or the couple at the top? Oh, Griffin, do I? Uh, <laughs> I'm fishing for an answer here and I'm hoping I learn. Mm. My favorite is the, uh, this actually has a Zemeckis connection. It's the 1971 animated version by Richard Williams, uh, who did the animation for Who Framed Roger Rabbit. It is done in the style of the woodcut engravings from Dickens' original book. It's gorgeous. It's on YouTube. Even in like 360p or whatever it is, it's just gorgeous to look at and beautiful. He won an Oscar for it. Um, I love the Alistair Sim version. I like Muppet Christmas Carol a lot. You know, oh, there's yeah. there's some there's some really good ones, but my favorite by far, the one I watch every year, is that 1971 version. That that one is really good. Alistair Sim also plays Scrooge in it. Like, yes, it's like he does. he's doing mm-hmm. right. He's doing your classic Scrooge. He is like right. He's sort of the he's he is Scrooge, right? Like that's yeah. you know mm-hmm. that he played Scrooge a bunch and yeah 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 yeah. Muppet Christmas Carol definitely my first experience of christmas carol i would imagine 
My right? first was my first was Mickey's, and I think Mickey's yeah. has you got know a what? little. I yeah. saw Mickey. Yes, mine was also Mickey's. I definitely saw that when I was. Yes, that's right. That, that's that right. Mickey one was big. Am I mistaken in thinking that it was released in theaters alongside? one of the re-releases of a Disney classic, and then it became just like a blockbuster VHS. Well, TV I, let's find out. Let's find I out. saw it. I did my very first time going to the movies. I saw Mickey's Christmas Carol with the rescuers. There we go. In okay. theaters. Yes. So. It, was put, it was put with the rescuers and then just became a TV. Right. right. Yeah. But right. that one's really good too. I mean, yeah, it speaks to just the potency of this story that like, not only are most adaptations of it at least enjoyable, but also the inevitable like TV episode parodies of it are mm-hmm. usually pretty good. It is pretty hard to fuck up this format. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. We never get tired of it. And there, I don't know, I feel like there was something slightly exciting about the announcement of this movie just because it felt like, Hmm, that might be in Zemeckis' wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. And aside from the mocap, he doesn't have any big story hook. He's not trying to put it in a contemporary setting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's not trying to radicalize it in any way. Like his argument is using this technology to try to make the most faithful adaptation of the book in a way the technology uh, Which- could not allow up until this point. Which, in a way, he succeeded at because uh, the book does have that sequence rarely committed to film where Scrooge is chased by a hearse being driven by the ghost of Christmas future and then, like, has to, you know, escape it and turns into a tiny man and goes into a tube and uh, a whole bunch of stuff happens. It's in the book. Nobody's ever put it on film. I'm pretty sure there's a shit joke in there at one point where he talks about Christmas pudding, which is cool. The book has, people don't realize this, the book has 45 pages of tiny Scrooge hanging onto an empty bottle, skidding down the streets and rooftops. (sighs) It does, it does bring in things that are from the book that I guess, no, like the thing where he puts out the Christmas past guy as a candle. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. That is in the book. Yeah. But I don't know that you're you're like you're reading the book and you're like, God, that's so great. We gotta include you know what I mean? Like it's that's just a weird image. And Zemeckis is like, yeah, that that'll be a set piece. That's gonna be a whole set piece. We're gonna blow that out. There's a, there's like stuff that's in the book that he could have done put in the movie that would have padded things out in an interesting way like the Scrooge and the Ghost of Christmas Present go on like a journey where they visit miners and sailors and like people who are celebrating Christmas out in the mm-hmm. wilds of Britain and like that is a nice little sequence in the Richard Williams one and it's just you know it could have been good here too so it's very odd that this film is a completely lacking in humor it is like perhaps the single most humorless adaptation I have ever seen of this story and B, excuse me, is also weirdly lacking in feeling. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It it has not a lot of emotion and like, this is about a person's emotional transformation. Like that's what a Christmas Carol is about. So that's a problem. And he's a bastard. I mean, that reads, (laughs) Yeah, you, you, you get that he's not very that. nice at the beginning where he says children yeah. should go to jail. <laughs> sure, <laughs> but for, I also for I, the crime of poverty. I feel like you got some fundamental issues if I'm watching a Christmas carol and when Tiny Tim shows up for the fourth time, I go, oh, right, Tiny Tim. 
<laughs> right, but, right, um, right, right. Tiny Tim's in the movie. Okay. The yeah. the other, I would say, the yeah, the issue Griffin is referring to is that uh, this film stars Jim Carrey, a uh, mm-hmm. famously funny man, and uh, is light on jokes, light on humor. But yeah. also, like, light on character comedy. Like, it feels yeah. like he is pointedly trying to avoid finding any comedic angle to the four characters he plays. Which is yeah. remarkable because Scrooge is already a comedic caricature yes. of a rich man. And then the ghosts are, you can go any direction with them. And like the idea of having him play these ghosts is actually pretty smart and like the kind of thing mocap was made to do, but right. they don't do anything with it. it it's right. one of the strongest arguments for mocap is that kind of like, oh, it's like a digital kind of man of a thousand faces thing. You can have mm-hmm. one guy play a whole cast of characters, be in scenes with himself have that be a more natural sort of acting pipeline. Uh, and yeah, it's like, it's not like that's like part of the text in the way that like, you know, the dad and hook are usually double cast in Peter Pan, but it feels kind of natural in that same sort of way. Yeah. The reflections of Scrooge. It makes sense. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's thematically appropriate. I mean, the, 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 the ghost of Marley is his guilt. The ghost of Christmas past is his regret. The ghost of Christmas present is his, uh, his loneliness and the ghost of Christmas future is his fear. Like it works. It just, you know, they don't, they don't bother like explaining why they're doing it or at least just having like Jim Carrey make fart noises when he's a giant man. Like that would be cool. It, it is odd to watch a modern adaptation of a classical work and be like, man, I wish he was like breaking scene to teach someone how to Dougie. I wish there was more like. <laughs> right. I wish he was like, do not go in there. <laughs> right. You're just like, do something, motherfucker. Yeah, he does a little at the end, as we will, I'm sure, talk about, right? Like, when he's happy Scrooge, he's finally, it feels like, riffing a little bit, like doing mm. some carry stuff. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a thin gruel. It's a, I will, a thin I will say gruel. this. I will say this. I think Christmas Carol is, I can't think of another uh, thing that is so frequently adapted where we talk about the, how it's adapted in terms of who plays Scrooge instead mm. of who directed it. It's the yeah. Alistair Sim Christmas Carol. It's the Patrick Stewart Christmas Carol. It's the George C. Scott Christmas Carol, whatever. And, you know, like, this is the only one where it's like, yeah, that's Zemeckis' Christmas Carol. That's partially because Zemeckis is such a big deal. And it's partially because Jim Carrey leaves absolutely no impression. Because this absolutely should be the Jim Carrey Christmas Carol. You have to imagine that's why Disney pulled the trigger so hard on this thing. If I could back up a little bit, to just do a little bit of table setting because this is like a byproduct of, of I think, a really interesting kind of five-year period at Walt Disney Studios where they're in this transition zone. It's sort of the jump between Eisner being ousted and Iger fully dominating the motion picture landscape before they start acquiring everything and just become, you know, the owners of all IP. But I know, like, you know, their animation studio was still on the rocks. They're in the process of rebuilding it. Pixar had just been acquired by them. So 2009, the last three Pixar movies had been Up, Wally, and Ratatouille, the three movies that Pixar produced independently. So like Disney's right. influence on Pixar won't come into effect until next year with Toy mm-hmm. Story 3. Uh, uh, Bolt is, I think, the year before this. Tangled is the year after this. That's really when Disney animation is kind of up on its feet. Um, 
The Pirates of the Caribbean series perhaps tapped out at this point. They revive it again. But at this point, it was like, maybe that's three and done. I think there was a major awareness on their part that they did not have boys brands. That was always sort of talked about that they like they were trying to retool the Disney princess strength in a modern way, aside from just the legacy characters on sleeping bags. Uh, But they were like, we need boys things. So Tron Legacy happens and Prince of Persia happens. Uh, Lone Ranger happens and uh, outrageous budget. But they're just like taking big bets on trusted names for things where it's like, is that an old franchise that maybe has enough cult appeal? Are these people who have been good with us in the past? Are they going to be able to make something new? Alice in Wonderland comes out five months after this and Mm -hmm. is like a humongous hit that I feel like really starts to mark like the transitional point. That movie very much feels like it came out of we want to be in business with big talent. We want to get Burton back in the fold. We want to come up with a new take on Alice in Wonderland. But what stems out of that, obviously, is just let's remake all of our legacy titles. Let's just Mm -hmm. get more uh, literal about putting these things into live action. Um, But but this is like the end of Dick Cook's run. And it felt like he was really starting to experiment. And there was a story I remember reading on like Ain't It Cool or whatever in 07 or 08 about like the big upfront meeting they had for their shareholders where they were like announcing and showing off concept art for the next three years of their big movies. And it was the kind of thing that gets live streamed now and people lose their minds over because we now all like watching uh, shareholder presentations as content. But back then it was like a thing that didn't leak out and there were just weird written reports of it and these guys coming out and like selling their pitch and Zemeckis came out and like pitched the Christmas Carol thing and showed off the artwork, the concept artwork and was just like, look, first of all, Jim Carrey is the ultimate mocap actor. Think right. about what we're starting to work Rubber on here. face. Yeah. Right. I tell you Jim Carrey and mocap playing multiple characters already dollar signs in the eyes. Right. Then I go Jim Carrey is Scrooge. You should get amped. That feels like a great part for him. And the other characters he's playing are the ghosts and people are losing their minds. And he's like, and by the way, I have a pretty good track record when it comes to time travel movies. And I just remember reading that like it brought the fucking house down and people were salivating and they were like, yes, yes. And he was like, Polar Express, remember that shit? They still release it in IMAX every year. It makes another $10 million. And people are like fucking like Arsenio Wolf hollering. You can see how on paper... Even though now it feels like a kind of risky bet because everything has been so algorithmed and you so rarely get a movie that isn't from a very specific, well-established pipeline uh, coming out of Disney. This does kind of check off all the boxes where you have to imagine Disney maybe regrets that they didn't do Polar Express. Uh, that this technology seems like it's not going anywhere, although it ends up mutating after this into a pretty different form the straight mocap movie pretty much ends after this save for Tintin um and and also like Jim Carrey that's a big star we want to be in business with much like they had done bedtime stories that they were like we want to make an Adam Sandler movie we want to make these big movie star movies we want to be in these brand silos when Iger comes on and it just becomes like we have our four pipelines that's it all that experimentation goes away. Another weird thing that came out of that pitch presentation, do either of you remember this, that they announced that Guillermo del Toro was going to be given his own imprint at Disney called Disney Double Dare You, where he was going to get to make live action and animated films at a mid-sized budget that were particularly designed to scare children? 
Yes. I do remember that. <laughs> I remember that. And literally like six months later, he gave some interview. He was like, yeah, that, that never happened. Like, that's not going to happen. Dick Cook got fired and everything went out the window. And then you have these vestiges, the leftover movies like Christmas Carol. But there was also so much post Hellboy 2 Guillermo stuff that never came together. Like he was the king of announcing shit that sounded cool and would fall apart. And then, of course, Hobbit being the ultimate, you know, version of that. The uh, that uh, the first year I went to to Comic Con was 2009, and that was uh, Christmas Carol year. And Disney was like the first presentation in the big ass Hall H, which is where they have all the movie stuff. And Christmas Carol had a lot of buzz coming out of that. People were like, "This looks really cool." The the ghosts look great. Blah blah blah. And like, I don't know what they showed because I assume they showed footage from this film. But people were like buzzing about it. So I was I was kind of hyped for this movie. There's another factor at play, which is just that 3D was still pretty fresh. There weren't a lot of fully 3D movies and especially movies like designed with someone who understands the technology as well as Zemeckis does. So I just feel like if when people would see a five minute sizzle reel or a trailer of this, you were just kind of so dazzled by like, oh my God, there's so much like kinetic energy and movement and everything's popping into my face that people would be like, I guess it looks great. No, <laughs> no. I thought this movie looked like shit. I thought it was a bad idea at the time. I want that on the record. I heard the idea and I was like, I sound stupid. That was also the first year they did 3D presentations in Hall H, and that right. was the year yes. they presented Avatar, and everyone was like, this looks terrible. The, right. This is what Griff and I were talking about. This movie is, what? what is it, Griff, six weeks before Avatar? Avatar it's comes out six weeks after this movie. They look like they're in different decades. There are aspects of Avatar that already are looking creaky, but geez louise, these films do not feel like they are of the same generation, let alone yeah. within a two-month span of each other. <laughs> It's really like Cameron is really spanking Zemeckis in terms of like, okay, you're, you think you're like the sort of pioneering VFX director, but like you truly do not know what you're doing with this stuff. Like, I mean, I know he's not doing this aggressively, but that's just how it feels. And they do feel like after this Zemeckis slinks off and, you know, cuts it out. Like, you know, I mean, you know, he, he gets tempted back later as we will see, but he's like, you know, I'm, I'm going to go make flight. Yeah. This is the other part of it I want to frame is that Image Movers, his company, which had sort of become Image Movers Digital and was starting to rebrand itself as like an animation company, um, did Polar Express at Warner Brothers, Monster House at Sony, Beowulf at Paramount. Most of those films were independently financed, sold off to distributors. Disney was like, we want you. Uh these were the types of acquisitions they were making rather than buying Marvel for billions of dollars. They were like, can we get a first look three picture deal with image movers? Maybe this is the future. Um, So it was this film. And then two months after this movie, three months after this movie, Mars needs moms comes out. Mm -hmm. And he was, he was getting ready to film yellow submarine the weekend Mars Needs Marms come, came out and they literally like pulled the plug, turned the lights off, shut everything down. He was like ready to go. Um, and there's a lot of artwork you can see for that that looks incredibly strange. But he was going to do what was described as a more narrative-based <laughs> yellow submarine. It sucks so much. It was going to be the worst. 
it looked so weird. Have you seen the pictures? I've seen the mo the the picture of the the purple meanie, and it looks yeah. to me like some Alice in Wonderland crap, and I hate it. It also looks like Rudy Giuliani. But then there's a <laughs> it does picture kind of, of look like <laughs> there is one that really looks like Rudy Giuliani. <laughs> there's a picture of the Beatles, and they have like bananas, yellow submarine proportions, where their arms and legs are like twelve feet long, and like you know the the width of spaghetti. Um, he's going for less photorealistic with it, which at least feels like, well, that's where you should have been going earlier on. But Disney just bails entirely on the notion of like this being a form of entertainment, this being the guy to be in business with. And that's when he totally slinks off and apparently like retreats to a house and like reassesses his life. And then it's like, send me good spec scripts. Let me just read good live action movies that won't cost much to make. Wasn't, I mean, you you know this, right? Peter Serafanovich was going to play yeah. Paul, right? Yes, Paul. yes. He was going to play yes. Paul. Yeah. Crazy. I've talked to him about it a lot. I mean, they were like really ready to go. Yeah. Um, and, and he was very excited about it. I mean, he's a really big Beatles fan. I think he was just very excited uh, to be playing that part. Um, I, yes. I think it's also worth noting that it wasn't just that Marsney bombs bombed, although, of course, that thing bombed. But yeah. A Christmas Carol did not make money. Like, even though it was pretty successful, at, you know, in terms of money gross, so cost too fucking much, money. much. Right. Yeah. So it was like a hit, but a hit at the box office that ended up being a money loser for them. And then Mars Need Moms was radioactive. Yeah. Yeah. And Mars didn't need moms. It didn't need them. And like Christmas Carol, Christmas Carol should generate money, but this was yeah. so expensive. And like, you could see Disney being like, well, we can bring it back every year. Like right. they do with Paul and it just, it never happened. It never became okay. that kind of movie. So that's the other interesting kind of rabbit hole. I went down here trying to figure out like why Disney was so confident about this. The other aspect is in terms of Disney trying to like check off boxes at this point in time, trying to rebuild their world domination and being like, we need an action franchise. We need a, this, we need a, that we need this going. Disney surprisingly doesn't really have like a definitive Christmas movie. And for an entertainment company as vertically integrated as Disney, the value of having a Christmas movie that's going to like pop up again in revenue every year that will always be like replayed on TV, go up in rentals, re-release, you can do all the merchandise. And like, I feel like they've now kind of squared the circle by being like uh, Nightmare Before Christmas is both. That's that's it's, their one, right? Yeah. Right. I mean, I mean, you're forgetting another film that I directed 3 fourths of. <laughs> you directed 3 fourths of it? Yeah. Uh, Nutcracker in the Four Realms. <laughs> right, exactly. I did three of those realms. But, but David, uh, to know. this point, <laughs> Nutcracker in the Four Realms is like the one inexplicable Disney movie of the last 5 years. Right, and it's probably it's them being like, yeah, can we get a Christmas movie? Right, yeah, it right, has right. to be. It has to be. And even like the Santa Claus trilogy, which is successful for them, has not lingered in that same kind of way. Like you have to imagine Disney is like, I wish we had an elf. I wish we had a Christmas story. I wish we had well, uh, a now, wonderful life. Okay, now I, yeah, now that this begs the question, what are the best what's you like, come on, uh, Emily Griffin, Ben, Christmas movie. Like come on, what's your yeah. Christmas movie? Always, always, it's a wonderful life. Like I just, sure. I, I, mean, I, you know, a, <clears throat> a great, but one. yeah, like I, uh, I, I just can't uh, top top that one. I think it is interesting that Disney purchased 
20th Century Fox. And like, if you go on Disney Plus, their Christmas section is mostly 20th Century Fox movies. Like Home Alone. That's, Home right. Alone. That's the thing. Yeah. Okay. Miracle so on 34. Yeah. Say, they're really weaponizing Home Alone now. They're yeah, like well, pushing Home Christmas Alone movie. nostalgia hard because I think they're like, finally, we have one that like people are in the feels about. Uh, and then before Christmas, it gets murky between the two holidays. I mean, it's it's same obvious lazy answers for me. Elf is my favorite modern one. Muppet Christmas Carol is probably my emotional favorite. Wonderful Life, I think, is the best. Uh, it, mm. it, my, my secret stealth answer, even though it doesn't totally fit, but it is a movie set around Christmas and New Year's, is Hudsucker Proxy. Mm-hmm. Like, Hudsucker mm-hmm. Proxy is the movie that feels <laughs> most like the holidays for me. Uh, the um, mov- right. The, the movie that I love, even though I know it's total shit, but I watch it every year. Like a lot of people have that relationship with love. Actually, I have that mm. relationship with the Family Stone, which I know I, David I was abhors. About to say, don't you fucking say the yes. fucking Family fucking Stone to me, <laughs> Emily? <laughs> yes, fucking piece of shit movie. Yes, Emily. Yes. <laughs> Why do people like this movie? Okay, okay, look. It works. Okay, look. It just fucking Emily, works. It works. It you're not works. the only. You're not the only person. Lots of lots and lots of people like that movie. Griffey Nooms apparently. Yeah, likes that it, movie. You just you can't go wrong. It's just a, a great cast. They're having a, I I love the giant family assembles at Christmas movie. It could be a lot worse than Family Me Stone too. and I would still love it. Yeah. Thank you. <sighs> family Stone is so bad. It's a film I saw with my grandma at Christmas and I loved and I had the the, the my Rachel McAdams crush was at its peak. Oh. Yeah, it's and she's wearing like a dinosaur junior shirt in that movie, and she's got glasses. I want to note that cool. at this time on the message board, you had a Rachel McAdams and Wedding Crashers signature in your picture because you just Whoa. were so into. Call that. me out! I'll fucking admit it. Absolutely, I don't remember that, but I believe it. I loved Rachel McAdams. I still love Rachel McAdams. The best. Um, and and me and my fucking grandma walked out of that movie being like, yeah, that was kind of disappointing. Like it didn't get me. And I've never seen it since. Uh, and I keep I'm, I keep being like, should I give it one more shot? Like, people love the Family Stone. Yeah. Like, even though the director, I feel like, never really uh, had another hit, right? That Diane Lane, Kevin Costner movie that just came out. That's like the yeah. highest grossing movie in America by default. <laughs> and then he Let did. Let him go. And right, he did the he, one with uh, Selena Monte Carlo. Gomez. Yeah, right. yeah, right, right. So, okay. Someone, someone was tweeting the other day, some critic who I apologize for not giving credit to, but someone was tweeting like, he's this incredibly weird figure because he goes like 10 years in between movies and he makes like a low scale exercise in a kind of forgotten genre that's slightly better than it needs to be and then just kind of disappears again. I remember when Family Stone came out or when it was screening, there was a movie every year that uh, esteemed internet commentator David Poland every year Mm -hmm. would be like, this is going to be an Oscar player. This is going to win a bunch of awards. Family Stone was his movie in 2005, and then it did right. nothing at the Oscars. So. You speak, yeah. he you speak of course, the Poland curse. The Poland the curse. curse, yeah. Right, the Poland curse. It was, I mean, I was all in on those boards at the time, uh, or certainly at least the comment sections on the hot blog, or as Lex G would call it, the cold blog. Uh, <laughs> a savage, a brutal takedown from Lex G. But, um, uh, yes, I mean, the the most infamous one was when he said that Phantom of the Opera was going to win Best Picture. That yeah. it was like, we have our front runner. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Mini Driver snubbed. Um, yeah. When are you, when are you doing Schumacher? Snubbed. When are you doing Schumacher? Get out of here. It's too fucking long. It's <laughs> half a year, problem. Joel Schumacher. <laughs> That's the problem. I mean, I would love, I'd love to cherry pick, 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, oh boy, it's long. We've talked, you know, we've sort of, you know, joked about it or whatever. It's also yeah. a weird, sad ending. The last like five just stink. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Family Stone. For, okay, so yeah, whatever. Maybe you know what? I'm gonna watch the Family Stone, the the, the everyone's favorite wife swap movie about the uh, you know white guilt. Right, like there's there's a whole, yeah, there's that yes, whole correct. scene where yes. Sarah Jessica Parker points at herself to reference race or whatever. Anyway, Christmas movies. The, people like that new one, the Happiest Season. I haven't seen it yet. Uh, the, Excited that, to that, watch that, it. That's that pretty seems good. cute. Family pretty good. Stone vibes, right? Like that, that's I mean, you know, right. It is a uh, it is a mediocre um, family gets together at Christmas movie because it doesn't give anybody but Kristen Stewart and Mackenzie Davis anything to do. But it's a it's a very sweet Christmas rom com about two ladies, right. which is right up my yeah, alley. Right. I look. I I love Home for the Holidays personally. The Jodie oh, Foster movie. That's mm, that's a yes. fantastic movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, which is another. I mean, I believe is it. I can't even remember if it's Thanksgiving or Christmas. It's Christmas, right? I think it's Thanksgiving. Think, no, it's Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. It's Thanksgiving. Yeah. That's 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 yeah. the only problem with it. But it's it's the same obvious. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, uh, it's the same thematic thing. Uh, I love. Yeah, you know what? I love Robert Downey Jr. movies. I love Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. That's a great Christmas movie. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Iron Man 3, the iconic Christmas movie that we love, uh, Griffin. Can, I mean, can we go on a little side tangent here? This, this shit that gets litigated every year of like, but is that a Christmas movie? As if there is some governing board, as if it's like champagne. And unless Emily the film is produced. I am, I am the governing board. So right. let's just let me just determine right now. Name some movies. I'll tell you if they're Christmas movies. But but uh, like all lo- Shane Black movies are Christmas movies, right? Yeah, of course. Like, there Christmas. shouldn't Absolutely. be any litigation there. To the degree that I always think Die Hard is a Shane Black movie because it features Correct. Christmas so prominently. Thank right. you. Right. Same here. I always file it in the Shane Black cabinet. Right. And Shane Black wrote many a Bruce Willis movie. But no, uh, 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 A Little Princess. That's another one. That's a, that's a Christmas mm-hmm. movie, right? Mm-hmm. I don't really remember, but Christmas yeah. must happen in that movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I like uh, like like Fanny and Alexander is like a Christmas uh, movie to me because it has a yeah. gorgeous Christmas sequence. Yeah. The thing is, and I don't think I'm, you know, telling tales out of school here is like the Christmas movie for me is is Fellowship of the Ring. Like not even yeah. all okay. the Lord of the Rings. I agree. The, the yeah, Lord like, of the Rings movies, I watch all of them around Christmas. They're, really? they're, they're, yeah. classic, they're yes. a classic Christmas rewatch. I Definitely. basically do it every year. I don't wow. always make it to Return of the King, like because yeah. just because they're long. But Fellowship of the Ring, I think, has to be in the canon. Emily. David, and they're like on cable TV. Yeah, right. Because right. I feel like TV, I'm at my right, parents' yeah. house and I, I'll watch them with commercials. Like, they just but feel I like mean, they're running. Look, we're going to let Emily do the final ruling here. But for me, that's where it starts to become questionable. Like when people go like, no, Die Hard's an action movie. It's not a Christmas movie. It's like one doesn't negate the other. It's set around Christmas. Christmas is interwoven throughout the entire film. Fellowship of the Ring, your argument is I watch it at Christmas time. It feels They've Christmassy. got elves, Griffin. Come on. They've got elves. All is it Christmas textually movies, Christmas? Yes. All Christmas movies are about like needing people in your life at hard times, right? Like that's what Christmas movies are about, right? I let me submit that a movie that becomes a legitimate gigantic phenomenon that changes the film industry that comes out at Christmas, that's which happens thing, very rarely. Yes can be sort of a Christmas movie by proxy. Like right. it has to be, it has to be brought to the party by a different Christmas movie. Okay. But I would say the three Lord of the Rings and Titanic both fit wow. that criteria. So Titanic's I'm putting them in. One. 
That's putting him in. One. I, yeah. I'd like to throw out two uh, obvious Griff picks as well. Sure. Uh, uh, Gremlins. Great mm-hmm. Christmas yes. movie. Yeah. Yep. The Phoebe Kid Santa Claus speech, one of my favorite uh, elements of Christmas filmmaking ever. Uh, mm-hmm. Batman Returns. Great Christmas mm-hmm. movie. Of course. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. I yeah. also, of course, you ha- one has to acknowledge Eyes Wide Shut, of course. A great mm-hmm. Christmas movie. Wonderful yeah. Christmas movie. Uh, Perfect and, Christmas movie. Um, of course, Trapped in Paradise. Like, that's a classic Christmas movie. Uh, the film Dana that was written, Carvey. directed, and produced by Ben. <laughs> uh, Nicholas Cage, John Lovett's film. I mean, we all love that, right? I've never seen Trapped in Paradise. I think the even more interesting sort of question is, these movies that have a Christmassy vibe, mm-hmm. but aren't actually about Christmas. Like, the one I always point to is um, The Royal Tenenbaums, which... sure. sure doesn't actually have anything to do with Christmas, no. but feels like it takes place at Christmas. Wes Anderson, yeah. definitely. A lot of his movies, I feel like, have that sort of, because they have a snow globe feel to them. You know, mm-hmm. but yes, Royal Tenenbaums, especially because it's about family and all that, that, that also brings it in. You know, family, movies about family often sort of end up getting sifted into this box. Well, um, I, I just, I read some, one of the, National Treasure Producers was doing press for some other movie he produced or something, and they asked about why National Treasure 3 never happened, and he offered one of the 15 excuses that come up from time to time. But the one he said that was different was, you know, Disney is so vertically integrated, they never figured out how to make National Treasure valuable for them in any other sector of their business. They never figured out how to put it in the theme parks. It never became merchandise. Sure. You know, you couldn't do like the video games didn't work. Like it, there was no other area of the company that could benefit from national treasure. And as time went on, Disney became all about like a movie needs to function in every facet of our company. And something like Santa Claus, the Santa Claus trilogy, the Tim Allen movies, they're hits. All three of them do well, well enough for there to be three of them. But A, even though I think there is some nostalgia for them from our generation, it doesn't feel like they're the same kind of like perennial, regular TV appointment viewing movies. It doesn't feel like they've ever gained any value at Disney and other areas of the company. And you just have to imagine in 2009, Disney's looking around and they're like, we don't have a Grinch. We don't have a Charlie Brown. We don't have a Buddy the Elf. Like, aside from not having, like, a classical Christmas movie, we also don't have, like, a mascot of Christmas. We can put Mickey in a Santa hat, you know? Mm-hmm. Even to some degree, I wonder that if that's a reason why they never have weaponized Muppet Christmas Carol as much as I thought they would after they bought it. That they want something that is, like, proprietary to Christmas. So the appeal for them of, like, let's get a massive movie star and a massive filmmaker doing, like, what could be the definitive Scrooge. And he can be like all designed to look perfect like Scrooge and the ghost will look awesome. Uh, it, it tracks on paper. But I agree with you, David, that when I mm. saw it, I thought it looked like, to quote David Sims, film critic at The Atlantic, like a bowl of farts. I thought it looked like a bowl of farts. And I I remember just feeling like, this, really? This is still as far as the technology has come. This is still the sensibility that Zemeckis is hitching his wagon to. That having been said, remember going to see movies with my friends in theaters, that trailer came up. One friend in particular, I remember turning to me and going, that looks amazing. 
I mm. remember the trailer being very extra. It was really trying to sell right. uh, that that his face, you know, and how how yeah. intense it looked, all that. Right. There's a money shot at the end of the trailer that isn't in the movie where he like where he's like slamming the, the door or something. Right. Yeah. He okay, turns the camera okay. and his face is like coming into the theater. And like a, a snowflake lands on his nose. Yes. He yes. blows it off. He looks straight down the barrel of the lens and he says, bah humbug. And I this swear is... it must have been a, a like a test. It must have been the demo reel to get them to green light the movie because it also looks so much better than he looks at any point in the film proper. But I remember that <laughs> shot and my friend Dixie turning to me and saying, oh, that looks amazing. And I was like, really? You think that looks amazing? And she went, well, I guess I've never seen a 3D movie before. Mm, like sure. we right, were, right. we were going to see some other 3D movie. That was the first trailer in 3D, and that being her first impression was like, "Oh shit, this trailer's doing all sorts of crazy shit." It looks amazing. It did like it didn't open well, but it did. People went to see this. People right. went to see it. It opened poorly, and then had okay holds, but it did they, well they overseas. Wanted- yeah, but they wanted it did okay. It did it did about the same overseas. They wanted the Polar Express thing, I think right. were really overperformed, you know, come Christmas time. And it did not. If you open a Christmas movie the first weekend of November and you can keep it in theaters, it right. will have a pretty But yeah, I think it's um I, I remember I went to see this movie on Christmas Eve because wow. I was like, I'm gonna go see a movie. And the theater was packed. Like people yeah. were coming out for it. So um but yeah, I, I I I agree with sort of your theory of where Disney was. I think Santa Claus would be a bigger thing for them, if not for Tim Allen. I think that Tim Allen hmm. kind of killed that movie by being Tim Allen in a weird way. It is also interesting that the first movie is so much like fish out of water. He's at odds. You wouldn't believe this guy is Santa Claus. And right. the sequels lean so much into... Tim Allen in so much makeup looking like Coca-Cola Santa Claus. Yeah, the, the, mm-hmm. like the poster for the second Santa Claus movie was just Tim Allen looking at the, you know, looking at you looking like Santa Claus. Right, that was right. At this point, mm-hmm. yeah, he yeah. doesn't look like Tim Allen anymore. He doesn't sound like Tim Allen. There are no ruse to be found. I'm going to I'm going to save it, in fact, and I'm going to make it my background. Here we go. Anyway, this movie. So you saw it in theaters, Emily. I saw it in theaters. I did. I waited until Christmas Eve. I was going to wow. see it opening weekend, but the reviews were so bad. And then I was just like. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I mean, it's wild. It's wild, this picture we're looking at. It, no one's cheeks have ever been rosier. <laughs> he looks drunk. I mean, let's let's just be straightforward. His face is red. It's the color red. <laughs> it's wild. He looks like ham from like a shot in the fifties. Do you know what I'm saying? Yes, I do. Back when they were like, "It's how it looks is what matters." Let's put as many chemicals as you want into it. It should it should look like fucking you know like a red sausage. Yeah. This is another interesting point, though. Is like you look at this poster and you go, "Why pay for Tim Allen?" Like, what, right. are, what are you doing here? Just You're go hiding. to Macy's. Like, <laughs> right. who cares? Right. Versus, versus another thing you have to calculate into this very movie is the Grinch was so fucking dis- successful despite being a piece of shit. It was so huge. And the fact that Jim Carrey was unrecognizable in it did not hurt business at all. People were like into the transformation of, 
oh my mm-hmm. God, it doesn't look like him. It doesn't sound mm-hmm. like him. He's transformed into this classic character. Yeah, it's uh, it's this thing that that really becomes like the 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 impetus to do a lot of these films is how can we make this person look exactly like the Grinch, look exactly like Santa Claus, look exactly like J.D. Vance, the writer of Hillbilly Elegy. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> Damn it, I was trying to get Santa Claus three going, but it, it doesn't really work with the background. <laughs> I'm sticking with two. Santa Claus 2 is kind of my aspirational fantasy, which is that I will meet a middlingly attractive middle-aged man who's like, listen, I'm in love with you and I'm going to make you Mrs. Claus and you just have to move with me to the North Pole. That's the premise of my I'm show. I'm think about Keep it. Keep it up with the closet. I'm going <laughs> <laughs> to think about it Keep every it time. I did not see this film, Griffin. I decided to not see it. That was my choice. Same here. And, and I'm glad that you respect it. Uh, instead, yeah. I probably saw Avatar again, or I probably. saw Sherlock Holmes, or yeah. trying to think I mean, of the sort of big Christmas movies that year. I absolutely saw Avatar for the third time on Christmas Day with right. my family. And yeah. some of the other big movies at Christmas. I'm not spoiling the box office game, because of course this film came out in early November. Avatar, Alvin and the Chipmunks, the Squeakquel. Alvin and the Chipmunks, the Squeakquel. Right. It was it was that bananas weekend. It was like the it still is. I think the single biggest day in movie going history right. because of Avatar, Squeakquel, and Sherlock Holmes all opening to over seventy. Yes, and I think also like Christmas was a Friday, so like it, it all yeah. it was all perfectly lined up. It's complicated. Came out uh, right. uh, on Christmas Day, right? Um, you have Up in the Air. You know, these are Christmas movies that I was seeing. I did not see a Christmas Carol. I saw it yesterday on my couch, and I thought it was bad. Three out of ten. <laughs> I watched it tonight, right before recording, on a three D Blu Ray. I I could not oh believe God. how boring it was. I texted David. I believe. Let me get my exact wording here, please. Uh, I said, uh, "How is Carrie so dry in this yes. movie? He is weirdly underplaying every role. He's funnier in the majestic." <laughs> yes, and I believe I said, "Like, I mean, my thing is like, and you'll agree with me. I'll be like." Scrooge is like Mr. Burns. He is the most yeah. ridiculous, exaggerated character. Yeah. He mm-hmm. is the meanest person alive. He's the most miserly person. Like, you know, what the, his personality traits are the most. Like, that's yeah. what Scrooge is. Signing on to play Scrooge is like stepping into a gondola on the river of ham. <laughs> right. <laughs> it and should Carrie, be. And Carrie, on top of this, is a cartoon in the movie. So it's yes. not just that he's playing Scrooge, it's that he's playing right. him as a cartoon. And yeah, his take is like, yeah, I'll play him as like kind of grumpy. And uh, yeah, I think that's what I'm going to go for. He's going to be like a little grumpy. He should have gone full Riddler. Oh, he yes. should have just gone, fucking gone for it. Just But, but like, But yeah. even like, uh, uh, whatchamacallit, Series of Unfortunate Events is five years before this and is arguably yes. a better Scrooge performance than this is. Like, that's yes, the kind of energy he should be bringing to this. And Dr. Robotnik is 11 years later and is a better Scrooge. He, he's given us many a Scrooge. Like, you know, he's given, he has. <laughs> yeah. the, you know who else is a better Scrooge? The Grinch. The Grinch. <laughs> a, another classic Scrooge. That's another reason he shouldn't be Scrooge. You already played the fucking Grinch. Like, how many the Grinch. Christmas grumps do you need Jim Carrey to bring you? So yeah, I, I the, found, I found yeah. a quote that Carrey said in an interview while promoting the movie. He said, uh, 
It's a very classical version of A Christmas Carol. There are a lot of vocal things, a lot of physical things I have to do, not to mention doing the accents properly. The English, Irish accents, I want it to fly in the UK. I want it to be good, and I want them to go, yeah, that's for real. It feels like that was his biggest take on each of the characters, was like, Ghost of Christmas Past, uh, lilting Irish accent, check, work done. Ghost of Christmas Present, kind of roly-poly Yorkshire guy, check, job done. Uh, Ghost of Christmas To Be, uh, just point a lot, check, job done. And um, the Ghost of Christmas Past is so disturbing looking. I actually like yelped when it came up yesterday when I was watching this movie. I was like, oh my God, what's that? It it just it his head's a candle, which yeah. is, you know, from the book. But, his body's um, a candle, his head's a flame, Emily. His head's a flame, yeah. Oh, that's right. I'm sorry. I'm his sorry. head is fire. <laughs> his head is fire. He but is like a he candle. moves around he moves around, the fire moves with him, and like his face looks like a like a little like squat like jack-o'-lantern. It's so disturbing um the old, but weirdly not the ugliest character in this film because the ugliest character is obviously bob cratchit yeah who bob looks cratchit like terrifying who looking. looks like a potato that has the face yeah. of jesus in it like yeah. that's what it looks like yes. emily yes. emily yes. the ex- the term i was about to say was pube potato i also went to potato <laughs> but i couldn't get over the hair pattern on that potato <laughs> oh, i want to look at it again now it, it's it's so weird because we literally had had when like when is Gary Oldman playing fucking uh Sirius Black as a fire in Goblet of Fire? Remember there's the there's the yeah. where he's just his face is just made of coal. He looks like two better. years earlier. Yeah. Right. He looks better in that than he does in this. It's the weird cheeks that's all messed up about, you know, like it's something about the way he, his cheeks He looks like a rodent. Like if you saw yeah. him in your house, you would leave out poison. <laughs> You also think about, like, Weta is running the table on mocap at this point in time, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And pointedly, Weta never tried to make their characters look too much like the actors, right? Maybe they put a little hint of it in there, but they were always sort of extrapolating as much onto a different model, which also necessitated some massaging and keyframe animation that probably made the performances better, whereas Zemeckis was so into, like, it's one-to-one, we're not futzing with it at all. It's straight there, unvarnished. Um, it is bizarre that Zemeckis is so committed to like all the characters need to look like the actors. But in this mm-hmm. one in particular, he hires people who are so physically different than the characters they're playing. So you get these odd, like, it looks like that fucking face replacement app that everyone does now where they put yes. their own face in different videos. Where you're smiling, right, all of a sudden, yes. Right, and you're just like, that is not the body that Gary Oldman's face belongs on. He is also not Tiny Tim. Why make <laughs> a little boy Tiny Tim that moves like Gary Oldman and looks kind of like a young Gary Oldman and then is just voiced by some other child? Have you I, I, since you've done the poll since you've done your Polar Express episode? Um, there was a quote Zemeckis gave around the time that movie came out. So tell me if you talked about this. That is just horrifying now when we think about who we cast in certain roles. Where he was talking about okay, imagine being able to do a story about you know the um, uh, Brown versus Board of Education, but Meryl Streep can play one of the little girls who like has to go to the school and like oh my god, Bob, but he got his dream. <laughs> Gary Oldman's playing right. Tiny Tim. He, right. He Hanks plays it. the little boy. And in Mars Needs Moms, uh, Seth mm. Green plays the boy. Like, he was, like, really into, like, 
having adults play kids. And in each of those cases, the plan was to have the adult actor also voice the kid. And at the last <laughs> second, it was too creepy and they hired a kid to redub it. I, we should also mention, so that's Gary Oldman. Colin Firth is in this movie, third build, uh, sure. as Fred Scrooge or whatever. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, Scrooge. Also, also looking kind of like Colin Firth in a weird, yeah. creepy, waxy way. Uh, you've got Hoskins coming in as Mr. Fezziwig mm-hmm. um, uh, for one big sort of musical sequence, essentially, right? right. Uh, the, so the hot reunion. chocolate of this movie. Yes, yeah. the hot, hot. <laughs> um, you got Robin Wright Penn playing yeah. once again a stone-faced nobody woman character. Like, every time Excuse he's me. like, Robin, let's get you in. David, I must correct you. <laughs> She plays two, two. different yeah, right. face, <laughs> nothing female characters. She plays, she plays both his, his sister and fiance, I believe. Correct. Yes. Correct. Correct. Exactly. Um, yeah. And then Carrie Elwes, yes, his Carrie main Elwes. job was to be the actor that Jim Carrey acted against in every scene. Right. For any of the scenes where he is playing against himself in the final cut. So most of Carrie Elwes' work was not used. And then they gave him like five nothing roles. Yeah, he plays like portly gentleman and you know, mad fiddler and guest two. He plays the guy who asks Scrooge for money, yeah. which is, you know, That's his biggest part. part. That's, That's his biggest the big part. part. Right. Uh, yeah. And then Scrooge is like, poor children should go to jail. And he's like, well, they might die. And Scrooge is like, good. That's great. I love that. Thin out the herd. <laughs> Elwes like, was also. That guy's impolite. <laughs> Elwes was also supposed to be in Yellow Submarine. And to some degree, I think Elwes was making a play to be like Zemeckis' circus. Like, I think he might have been like, can I be one of these guys who figures out this medium? And becomes like a go-to mocap stock company actor. Sure. Yeah. Fair enough. And uh, it worked. Yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> worked, it worked. Worked perfectly. In, 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 instead, he uh, produced Elvis and Nixon. And co-wrote Kevin, it. Did he, he did. He co-wrote it. Wow. Harry anyway. was co-wrote. Uh, um, but yes, yeah. Jim Carrey plays Ebenezer Scrooge at all ages. Each age is credited as a separate a separate character that he played at the end credits. I don't know if you noticed that, but it's like adult Scrooge, young man Scrooge, little boy Scrooge, Scrooge as teenager, and all of them are credited to Jim Carrey as separate. Scrooge, um, like when he's kind of waking up and he feels a little tired, like Scrooge during the day, <laughs> Scrooge at work. You should just keep going. Scrooge at night. They should have really credited both like... Pr- like mean Scrooge and like nice Scrooge as different yes. characters. Just Very, to get I it. mean, yeah. they're different men. Uh, yeah. Oh, also Gary Oldman is Marley. Yeah. Uh, yes, he plays Marley. I would say, and maybe this is a hot take, the worst looking yeah. creation in the entire yeah. movie. Which defies uh, logic. Yes. Spooky CGI ghost. That should be a slam a dunk. He looks just like a person that is blue. Like rather than being like transparent and ghostly. And I remember he's in the trailer and that Mm -hmm. was why when I saw the trailer, I was like, they clearly, they're just have not figured this out. Like, you know, there's there's three of these now and they just don't know what they're doing because he looks like shit. And the best Jacob Marley, of course, is the Marley brothers from Muppet Christmas Carol. Whoa. (laughs) 
the uh, the 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 whole thing about like the bit where he like undoes his his cloth and then he has to like flap his his mouth up and down like he's a puppet is just yeah, like weird. Uh, yeah, like it's supposed to be a bit I think, but uh, not funny or disturbing really. This is an era that's really earmarked by Zemeckis having poor impulse control of just needing <laughs> to follow through everything he possibly could do at any given moment of a movie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What were you going to say, David? <laughs> oh, so bad. It's just so terrible looking. Yeah, it's so bad. <laughs> it, it, the thing that Emily is referencing where there's the weird kind of body horror and there's a couple other moments like that, like the skeleton, uh, mm-hmm. where it's like, oh, he's kind of doing like more... Tales of the Crypty intense visual horror. I I a, like in a that, kids though. movie, right? I thought that was where good. Like, yeah, where I'm it's like, it's got that bones, will... it's got yeah. dust, and he's laughing <laughs> on a... the ground. Those are cool. Those are cool <laughs> yeah, things. Right. It's an idea. Like that's what I'll give. You know what I mean? Like at least it's something. But like um, when when. When the little kids want an ignorance turn into like like a criminal and like a like a uh, sex worker, it's just yes. like what a weird choice. That is right. incredibly bizarre. I did have to double check that it wasn't <laughs> Leslie Zemeckis playing the adult sex worker because <laughs> we've noticed a pattern, Emily, in all of these movies. Zemeckis cast his wife as the weirdly the most sexualized character in the mocap mm-hmm. universe. His oh, I've seen is, Welcome to Marwin. I've seen I've but, seen it. Yeah. But also, do you know his wife is the burlesque puppet in? Polar Express. <laughs> I did and, not know that. No. Yes, and is the busty beer wench in Beowulf, where there's yes. three minutes of her pendulous breast swinging. <laughs> but in this, she is um, she's just Colin Firth's wife. Yes. I don't think she has much to do. She is in it. Leslie Manville Leslie plays Mrs. Cratchit. Real life ex-wife of Gary Oldman. It's true. Married to Very odd. Yeah. Uh, it, I mean, look, it's a skilled cast, and and it, when we were texting about this, David, you were saying like he's treating this as if he's playing King Lear. Like, there's weirdly too much reverence for the idea of what Scrooge is, rather than viewing it as like a vehicle to have a lot of fun as an actor, let alone as a comedic actor. And if mm. it's like if your goal is to do like we're doing a very faithful adaptation. We're going to play right. it straight. We're going to lean more into the spookiness of Dickens or whatever. Then it's like, have fucking Gary Oldman or Colin Firth or Bob Hoskins, just to name three people who are in this movie, let alone any of the other people from like the Zemeckis rogues gallery. Have fucking, you know, like even you just think about how much more exciting this movie would be. Less commercial, but more exciting it would be if it was Christopher Lloyd is... Mm. Scrooge in Zemeckis's A Christmas Carol, and you had that kind of manic energy. But it's so bizarre that he is playing it so deadly straight. And I realized watching it, like, I mean, talking about Scrooge as kind of this like comedic archetype, right? It, 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 Christmas Carol is like the prototype for that sort of story we love, the royal we. Uh, but like, like something like As Good As It Gets, where it's like, watch mm-hmm. a very charismatic movie star play an unrepentant asshole. The first hour of the movie, the fun is, oh my God, they're saying the stuff I would never have the courage to say. They right. don't give they're, a fuck. They're Larry Daviding, yes. Right, and then the last hour of the movie, they learn how to be a good person. Nicholson. Nicholson would have been right. a good Scrooge. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's speaking of people Zemeckis has worked with, I think Harrison Ford now 
has a great Scrooge in him. I think he I think he'd be great. He would be so good, but it should be about a California stoner who's rich. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like they don't bring him to London. This is the mistake. Stop trying yeah. to put these guys in Victorian England. Bring Scrooge to an, you know, obviously they did it with Bill Murray, right? Like you yeah. can transpose this story to anywhere. Make it be about a guy who's like, all I want to do is yell at David Blaine and make my wood <laughs> woodwork, right? You know, like that's what you need. I just think the key detail is the actor needs to have fun being this much of an asshole. The only right. way a Christmas Carol works is if the audience is getting some perverse pleasure out of how evil Scrooge is, as you said, David, on like a Mr. Burns level, so that we're like invested enough to be touched when the transformation happens. Carrie's just playing an asshole. Like he's just playing and a like, guy who sucks. And you're just looking at your watch being like, okay, when's he going to realize the error of his ways? Like Michael Caine is fucking dialed in in so Christmas Carol. Good. You know what I mean? Like so good. I, what are the other Christmas? Car- I like the Murray. I like Scrooge. It's okay. I've always thought it's a little overrated, but maybe it's, it's underrated. Yeah, it's a, I feel like it's a little, it's a little it's overrated. overrated. It's overrated. Yeah. It was like, it wasn't even a huge hit at the time. So and maybe it's not overrated, but people maybe put too much on it because it has Bill Murray in it. I like the classics that we talked about. Have I guess you there's ever, no masterpiece. Have you ever, have you ever yes, seen the rich little Christmas Carol? I have it not. is. I've read about it. A glorious thing to behold. It is um, uh, Rich Little playing every part in A Christmas Carol. Uh, many of them as like celebrity impressions. I don't necessarily. I'm told this is true. They're all celebrities. I'm not really aware of. But, I, I will hear. Yeah. I'm going to tell you some of his uh, impersonations. Okay. Oh W.C. My God. Fields as Ebenezer Scrooge. Okay. <laughs> I'm looking at this list. So, I mean, for, first, first off, Hammer Blood. Perfect choice. You know, the audience is just like, he went there. He's doing, <laughs> he's, he's satirizing W.C. Fields, who died 30 plus years ago. He's daring to do it. You got Paul Lind as Pop Bob Cratchit. Johnny Carson as Fred. Laurel and Hardy as the solicitors. Richard Nixon as Jacob Marley. That's actually a little spicy for 1978. Yeah. That's somewhat related to the news of the decade. Uh, Groucho Marx as Fezziwig. Peter Falk as the ghost of Christmas present. That sounds good. Yeah. That actually sounds good. I'm into that. There's no... Uh, you're missing two key details here. Please, It's please, billed as Peter Falk as Columbo slash the ghost of Christmas treasure. <laughs> to make it clear get it? <laughs> which character he's riffing on. Gene Stapleton as Edith Bunker slash Mrs. Cratchit. But then a couple, just to end off strong, Truman Capote as Tiny, Tiny Tim. <laughs> that's just that's just homophobia. <laughs> I don't know how Absolutely. else to describe that. Peter Sellers as Inspector Clouseau as the ghost of Christmas yet to come. <laughs> I, I forgot to mention Bogart is the ghost of Christmas past. Yes. You murderer. Sure. You almost forgot that. James <sighs> Mason, George Burns, and John Wayne as the three businessmen and Jack Benny as a boy. Oh boy. I, wow. I presume the, what day is it, boy? Oh boy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- th- this, this has a helpful tool. There are five of these people were dead at time of production. <laughs> <laughs> Is that anyway, not a lot of track? Just like, want to say it's reading that, here. Reading that list, yes. the, the, the what what we imagine it to be 
That's the same kind of thing you imagine hearing Jim Carrey is going to play four characters in A Christmas Carol. Like, he's just going to fucking go off. And Carrey, despite not being, like, a grump as his comedic persona, did a lot of movies where it's like, oh, he's upsetting polite society. He's doing whatever the fuck he wants. Like, there is a devil-may-care streak to him that, in theory, should fit well. Guys, guys. When Richard Nixon comes in as, as Jacob Marley, <laughs> instead of chains, he has Watergate tapes. He has like real to real tapes draped on him. This is a masterpiece. Oh, boy. <laughs> this is so good. Oh, boy. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, we got to do it. I think you got to watch it. You got to watch it. Yeah. We got to watch it. Um, I mean, let's do a little little Carrie context. We're not digging into the meat of the movie as much because everyone knows what this fucking story is. Yeah, it's is. Christmas Carol. There's fucking three ghosts. Look it up. Right. Like, what do and you want it, from me? It is such a, a faithful adaptation. Uh, although, if there's anything in particular you want to say about it, Emily, uh, adaptation-wise, would very much like oh, to hear it. I'll, 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 we'll get to that, but let's talk okay. Carrie. Because I think this movie is a Rosetta Stone to understand Robert Zemeckis. I, ooh. And I'll tell you why later. Carrie, we realized we've never really done a Carrie movie before. Mm -hmm. And he's obviously one of the most dominant movie stars in the 90s. And we brought it up recently in a box office game. His his bananas year where he has $300 million movies in one year. He goes from being a guy who gets paid like $150,000 a movie to a guy who gets paid $7 million a movie. The following year gets $15 million for the Ace Ventura sequel. And the year after that becomes the first actor ever to make $20 million for what ends up being his first major flop. And then Uh, he kind of just continues to run the table on the 90s. Well, he made a movie after The Cable Guy called Liar Liar in which he couldn't lie. And, you know, obviously that was a huge hit. He couldn't lie. Humongous. Humongous. And then then he does The Truman Show, one of the masterpieces of movie making. But there was, there was the cynicism of like, oh, Carrie wants to be serious now. And then people love that movie and it was a big hit. He didn't get an Oscar nomination, but it was like a major fucking hit. I, we left Absolutely. off Batman Forever, which happens uh, in that's between. That, that's right. that's, that's right. 95. That's post his first wave. Right. But only builds. Um, yeah. Only builds. Uh, you got Man on the Moon, which I think he's great in. Very good. In that. I do right. too. But then that's, that's a box office disappointment. I guess so. I mean, it's a box office disappointment by the standards of a Jim Carrey movie, I guess. In terms yeah. of an Andy Kaufman biopic, it's it huge. Right. Like, you know. it, it, it must be the highest grossing Andy Kaufman biopic. <laughs> yeah. it, it definitely wasn't worth him being that big of a dickhead to make that I, movie. Well, no. it like ruined him, right? Like, I mean, isn't that I haven't ever watched that documentary, but isn't oh, that what that documentary is kind of about? It's the worst. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I guess, but it just portrays him in the worst light possible. He's so. I mean, they, yes. They they could retitle that Paranormal Activity 6 outtakes of Jim Carrey on the set of Man on the Moon. It is that <laughs> upsetting. He seems like an incredibly difficult person mm-hmm. in, in all ways. And like, you know, Peter Weir on the Truman Show, like talks about like how you had to like tire him out to get a real performance out of it. You know, you had to let him do all his shit and then mm. like, then you'll start getting stuff out of him. Like that was sort of how he approached it. He definitely feels like an actor you have to wrangle if you're not trying to just make a Jim Carrey vehicle. Like something like Liar Liar, you're hiring him to just do everything. 
Um, right. But 2000, I feel like that's when he's starting to just be like, okay, I'm going to do cartoon stuff, right? Me, myself, and Irene. That's like a cartoon rubber face movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, Grinch, obviously. It's humongous. Grinch. Highest grossing Baby. film of that year. Then, then the majestic. It's weird. It's like, I love Jim Carrey. Ace Ventura Pet Detective is literally the first like VHS I ever bought with my own allowance. You know what I mean? Like I that, that I was the perfect age for him, much like I imagine you guys kind of were. Maybe not. No. There was something about Ace Ventura that I always found very disturbing that I didn't understand. Yeah. Ace Ventura <laughs> is very disturbing in all yeah. ways. Um, no, I I was not allowed to watch Jim Carrey movies, um, but I did sneak uh, Dumb and Dumber on a class trip, and it's uh, it's a classic. It is okay. Same <laughs> good same thing for me, Emily, and it was because my parents uh, hate him because <laughs> he's annoying and like right. and and he was suddenly everywhere. Ben, where mm-hmm. are you on Carrey? I mean, I loved The Mask. Like yeah, The Mask is good. Big, big movie for me. I mean, I still say like taglines from that movie to this very day. Somebody See, I, stop me. I, for somebody example. has to stop you, right? Yeah. You often yell that at the police. Um, <laughs> th- I feel like. Truman Show was the first Carrie movie I saw, and I didn't see the Carrie comedies until after that. Like, my parents yeah. were just like, we're not taking you that shit. We find him so annoying. That, that but, card game Cinephile, I was playing that over Zoom mm-hmm. with my family, and my dad got, uh, or, or my sister rather, picked up Jim Carrey. We were playing it like uh, uh, what, card on head, guess the name of the person kind of thing, mm-hmm. clue style. And... Uh, so Romilly had Jim Carrey on her head and my dad was trying to give her clues and his clue was bad actor. <laughs> and I was like, you can't give that as a clue as if right, that's, that's a universal. Right. right. And he was like, I, I hate it. It's just, he's so annoying. <laughs> like he couldn't give any clue that wasn't clouded by his opinion of him. So, so you, I, your dad, I, okay. Yeah. No, I was just going to say, I got into him, like, late-ish. I mean, like, 99, I was watching the Carrie comedies on VHS, which is, as you kind of pointed out, like, when the golden period is over. So the Carrie right. movies I were seeing in theaters were when the bloom was off the rose. You're, you're me, myself, Irene, and Bruce Almighty's and what happened. I mean, Bruce right. Almighty was a huge hit. Humongous. Bruce Almighty huge was hit. Humongous. It's not yeah. a good movie. It's not no. even an okay movie. It's really no, no it's bad. It's kind actively of boring bad. And actively lame. bad. Actively right. bad. But um, right. it opened to seventy million dollars. It was the biggest was opening huge. weekend for an original film ever. In Bruce, we trust. That was the tagline. He'd done we the majestic, no which had bombed. So he was kind of like. Had bombed with everybody to be, you know, the, the, the majestic is just one of those just total bombs, right? Like it, it's, it's a Christmas movie awards potential. The director of the Shawshank Redemption critics are like, no audiences are like, no, like it was just right. the complete, complete rejection. He slinks off. He comes back with Bruce almighty. It's the same move as liar, liar. He's like, I'm going to yeah. come back high, fi- high concept comedy. You're going to love it. Like, right. Like. We're just going to be with Tom Shadyak. I'm going to just do another Tom Shadyak movie. But then yeah. he does have Eternal Sunshine the year after, which, which is his so best performance. Good. He's so amazing, incredible. right? So good. Yeah. yeah. But I feel like, uh, I feel like Gondry has talked about that he like went to Peter Weir and he went to Darabont. Yes. He went to all the directors who've worked with him and are like, tell me all the tricks. 
I mean, his right, whole thing exactly. was he said the reason he cast Jim Carrey was based on how lonely and uncomfortable he looked at the end of every episode of In Living Color when they would all come <laughs> on stage for the good nights. And he was like, that's the performance I wanted him to give. And you got to give Carrey full credit. He's brilliant in that movie. But it he also is. feels like the fact that he's never been able to give a performance like that again speaks to Gondry somehow teasing it out of him. That's the thing. It's what I'm trying to say here, I guess, is like it's 10 years from Ace Ventura to Eternal Sunshine. And yes, you have a couple bombs in there, but it, that is a a pretty solid block of work dramatically and comedically. And then, yes, he still like squeaks out hits with like fun and, with Dick and Jane and Yes Man and A Christmas Carol. Right. Like, you know, there's, there's Mr. Popper's penguins, the penguins, but like the life is out of his eyes. Yes. Yes. It's, it's just like he's just not very fun anymore like i remember yes man being that's probably the most watchable of them because like i don't know it's a peyton reed movie like zoe deschanel's yeah. you know people are kind of like working in the margins on that one but i couldn't tell you a thing that happens in it no that's also one of those wild movies where they were like trying to develop a new model to keep budgets of comedies down so rather than getting 20 or 25 million dollars up front he took zero upfront salary for 30 percent of the first I mean, dollar gross. 36%. He got right. a lot of the gross. He made a lot of fucking money on that movie. Uh, but yes, it's never quite the same. And I feel like the last decade, he's done a lot of weird, more like supporting parts. I mean, things like Kick-Ass 2 and Burt Wonderstone. When he's in a comedy, he's sort of like playing like the color character. Right. And then when he does something like Mr. Popper's Penguins, it feels like there's a gun to his head. Um, <laughs> I also just like, you know, I always- to his head. Well, there are many penguins to his head you know, and they're all I, holding I've guns. Ne- <laughs> I, I'll say this. I've never seen Dumb and Dumber 2. I have no idea if he's like locked in in that one at all. I, I tapped out after like 15 minutes on HBO Go. I, it just, mm. I was not, I was not uh, able to stick with it. Um, I feel like there was excitement around that, both like the Fairleys and him returning to form. And then it did well and just no one ever talked about it ever again. Um, but what I was going to say right. is I always like try to collect Stories when I when I work as an actor from like other actors and especially from uh, film and TV crews because uh, you can get really good gossip uh, other actors there. I'm less looking for like a savory personal life stuff and more just like I'm curious about what people are like work wise. Uh, right. And Carrie is one of those people where you just hear the the most uh, disastrous demented stories uh, mm-hmm. where he is just absolutely like a guy who's been so famous for so long and got famous for being uh, unreinable, you know, that he yeah. just does whatever the fuck he feels like doing at any given moment. And I'm not talking around like dark fucked up shit. It's just like the stories are so bizarre where they're like, like talking to like a grip who's like, yeah, I worked on Mr. Papa's penguins. He, uh, we were shooting in this guy's like $15 million Central Park West apartment, the last day of filming, he asked me for a Sharpie pen, and then he drew a giant self-portrait of himself on their living room wall and signed it and said, man, they owe me 20 million for that one. Wow. <laughs> and he just, so he's like, just in another reality. He's in another reality. By all accounts, he's in another reality and functions in that way where he is like, I am, I am doing a mitzvah to these people by defacing right. the wall of their living room with a drawing uh, of myself. I want to say I, because of his background in sketch comedy and TV comedy, his big breakthrough role was this uh, sitcom called The Duck Factory that got 
canceled after 13 episodes, but it was like supposed to make him a star. So he has a lot of experience with TV comedy. I was actually looking forward to him as Joe Biden on Saturday Night Live. And that was a disaster. It was a train wreck. The worst thing that has ever happened. And like, I too is like, because it like, remember the buzz on that was like, well, Carrie really wants to do it. And he asked Lorne and he has a take. And I'm like, Okay, like sure. If he Jim Carrey thinks he wants, you know, and then he he's just comes in committed. and does, he's ready to move to New York. He just did Fire Marshal Bill. Like there was just nothing going right. on. Like it was so weird after all that hype. The the thing that was so insanely damning about it was that Alec Baldwin looked like fucking the Groucho marks up there next to him. Al, Al yes. Baldwin suddenly I was like, well, Al Baldwin's actually locked in his trunk. This is good <laughs> yes. stuff. Like yes. it was insane. Like Al Baldwin was hitting his lines. I was kind of amused. Like, and then you switch back to Biden and he's like, ah, what are we going to do? Suckers. And he's like, you know, shooting a finger, finger gun. Guns. Like I didn't, I did like have, Joe Biden is, you could satirize the man. Oh, there, there are there's takes stu- on him. Yeah. <laughs> there's stuff. There's stuff there. Fucking, he was the Onion's best comedic yeah, character for eight years. that was years. a thing. Three other guys have played him well on SNL. I, Woody, I was just a big fan of the Woody Harrelson. Big fan is strong because anything political on SNL these days is pretty weak sauce. But like, mm-hmm. I, I, Woody Harrelson had a take. He had a look. It was kind of funny. Like, you know, that was working for me. I know he's like busy or whatever. Speaking of Carrie, where does the number 23 fall in? Because so, uh, that's uh, yes. that's a fucked up movie. That's a couple years before this, right? Right. I think yes. so. Number 23 is 2007. Like after Eternal Sunshine, he also has a series of unfortunate events the same year. And then he has Fun with Dick and Jane, which is one of those movies I think that had uh, been shot a while ago. You know, like that one sat on the shelf for a year. I think it was more that they kept shooting it for over a year. Right, that was a sure. movie that never was finished and they kept going back for more and more reshoots. Yeah. But but like, so if you basically sort of think of it as like, he kind of takes a three year break almost. And then the number 23 comes out and it's like, uh, uh, what? You know, like, wait, <laughs> is he into this? Like, that was the thing. It's, it's a horrible movie. Yeah. Anyway, like it's a stupid, bad movie. But there was also that kind of vibe of like, this feels like something Jim Carrey maybe believes <laughs> like, like that there's totally. some magic to the number 23. Totally. Am I misremembering? Is that another Schumacher? Yes, yes that's a Schumacher. You got to do him. You got to do Schumacher. Do we got to do Schumacher? I mean, <laughs> the number 23, though, uh, this was I, I just remembered the other thing I want to bring up. Uh because I was looking up photos from the press tour for this movie. One of the photos I had as my background, uh, my virtual background before I shifted it to adult Gary Oldman sitting on adult <laughs> Jim Carrey's shoulder to do the mocap. But uh, I found this photo of him and Zemeckis. They did some weird Amtrak cross-promotion train tour for yes. this movie. Because <laughs> I think they were trying to post big- off. Right, big Amtrak tie-in. I don't right. know why. <laughs> because of Polar Express. Uh, sure. But there's this picture for the press conference where he's like vomiting up tinsel or whatever. But Carrie had this look through the entire press tour where his hair was like fairly long. He has a yeah. really big beard. Cut and then the beard. he would wear a lot of loose layers. Like he would wear like a button-down shirt and then like another jacket and then a blazer and then an overcoat. And it was like very odd how it was a very consistent look and it was kind of dressed down for how many promotional appearances he had to make for this movie. And then it became clear, oh, 
he signed on to do the Three Stooges, a thing that I think people forget. He was right. supposed to be in the Fairly Brothers Three Stooges, where it was supposed to be uh, Sean Penn. Benicio Del Toro. Benicio Del Toro as Mo, yes. Sean Penn yeah. as Larry, and Jim Carrey as Curly. And it was a big Correct. announcement. Like, he's re-teaming with the Farrelly Brothers. Jim Carrey is going to gain 100 pounds to play Curly. And this was the period where he was trying to bulk up. So he started dressing in this way where you couldn't see his body and grew out the beard so you couldn't see his face. And then, yes. like, a month after this, he goes to the Farrelly Brothers and he's like, I can't do it. I can't gain the weight. I don't look right. And then just loses it all and like shaves. Right. And he looks says normal. he lo- he says he gained forty pounds and wanted to gain another forty, and realized like it, it he couldn't hack it. Like you know he yeah. whatever he must have been in his late forties, early you know like it, it was rough on him. I wouldn't He's, recommend gaining eighty pounds to play Curly in a Three Stooges movie either. No, he was pretty good. On the Showtime show, uh, kidding, which is not a great show, but like he was solid in it. Like he's got, he's got, he's still got I, I it. I kind of hated that show. Yeah, yeah. I, I, he was okay. it. I think he was good. I, I, I. He was good. He was interesting. The weird that that show bothered me because he was supposed to be playing a Mister Rogers type, you know, mm-hmm. figure, like yeah. a beloved and. Jim Carrey just doesn't have that energy. Like, Mm-mm. and especially not in this show that's kind of weird and a little, you know, showtimey, right? And so I I but yes, he was compelling. And he is compelling as Dr. Evo Robotnik in Sonic the Hedgehog. He's it's not like he doesn't have it's magic to him. It although I will say in a Christmas yeah. carol, he does not because no, but I'm I'm the, the, I'm the looking CGI at removes like, it. I'm looking at the last decade in particular, right? And I would wager that his best performance of the 2010s was as Leap Dave Williams in 30 Rock. <laughs> he, he He's fantastic. 20, 30. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I, I have <laughs> I forgot about that. <laughs> I have like immense nostalgia for the high concept Jim Carrey comedy, even though I Me haven't too. seen all of them. Me too. I just like I if he came out and he was like, I play him doing a movie where I have a guy who has a Tourette's syndrome, but for compliments, like I'd be like, yes, I'm there. I'm there. I'm a guy who fucked a dog and I became a cat. Like I would see that four times. You know, they would do that though with like, cause that's kind of what Mr. Popper's penguins is. And you're like, ah, shit, this sucks now. But like, I look, I threw on liar, liar recently, you know, or whatever. I stumbled on it. And when Jim Carrey is being, when he can't lie, it's great. Liar, liar liar rules there oh. is a solid hour of like marriage dramedy stuff in it that you're just kind of like okay jesus let's keep it moving you know he is a kid he has more a tyranny like there's all kinds of but when he can't lie that's great and maybe he should do liar liar too i don't know he can't lie. It's not- he, that li- liar liar is like his big it's his crossover from the like mm. the comedy yes. audience to like the broader audience where you could imagine him have gotten an oscar nomination for that somehow it wouldn't have happened but like you know you could see it and then like he's supposed to become hanks in other ways and there's just yeah. something about his personality that won't fill that space he, he's something he's off-putting creepy. about it yeah he's creepy. <laughs> right Right. I think it is whatever that manic, chaotic strain he has is that makes him engaging as a comedic performer. It doesn't – it makes it hard to accept him as an everyman 
And mm. Truman Show is such a weird take on the idea of him being an everyman figure because he's like a bottled sort of like a bespoke everyman created in a social experiment. And then Eternal Sunshine is a guy who's like sapped of personality. Like he's like pointedly playing an incredibly boring, emotionally inexpressive right. man in that movie. Can I point out, I, I uh, like him a lot and I love you, Philip Morris. Mm. Yeah, I never uh, saw I know that. You, People like yeah. that movie, right. Yeah. I like that movie. I think he's very good in it. That felt like that was maybe, you know, a, a glimpse into where he could go for the next decade and then he didn't really tap into that potential at all. In terms of straight comedy, I think the best one is Burt Wonderstone. Not as a movie, but he's good in that. I also have not seen that movie because it is against the law to see that movie. It is. I, look, I <laughs> served my time. I served my movie, time. That movie had, it is illegal to see this movie, buzz and box office. That, that's the only way to explain it. There are federal laws in place. One of my, one of my dream, one of my things like, uh, David will understand this. I spent a lot of time thinking about movies that people could make because we used to take part in like a weird online game where that would be like, oh, a, a, like a, a thing. Fantasy casting. And yeah. one, of, one of my dreams is Paul Thomas Anderson making a movie about a week in the life of the Lawrence Welk show because that show was so mm. like fucked up behind the scenes. And I was like, but who do you have play Welk? Jim Carrey would make a good Lawrence Welk. Anyway, that's a very strange reference that people will be excited well, to hear. Well, but Jim Emily, Carrey's Lawrence Welk. Great, great pitch. Uh, put it on the blank check picture slate along course, with uh, keeping up with the clauses, which is now the first project <laughs> under uh, blank tech check television. But of course, uh, that out. reminds me, the other thing we're not talking about was that for so long, there was the looming specter of the Christopher Nolan, Jim Carrey, Howard Hughes movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I wonder what that is. I wonder what that looks like. I'm, I'm kind of glad that never happened. I'm kind of glad it never happened, but in a certain way, Howard Hughes is a good fit for Carrie. Yeah. Uh, 100%. Yes. Creepy, reclusive, strange, intense. Right. It's just that we've done a lot of Howard Hughes at this point. But yeah. yes, no, in, in theory, that's an interesting project. When was that supposed to? I guess it was like. At several think, points in time. Right. The late 2000s, especially. The, the, right. That's sort of coming together. Yeah. Well, almost happened early 2000s. Aviator got to the runway first, then he almost right. revived it. And then people's thought is that, like, he kind of just put a lot of that stuff into Dark Knight Rises, <laughs> weirdly. <laughs> <laughs> he, like, cannibalized his Howard Hughes script into the third Batman movie. I've been thinking a lot about how Will Ferrell's kind of a. Will Ferrell's mm. kind of at this point where um, he is sort of where Bill Murray was pre Rushmore. And, like, he needs to, like, an indie filmmaker, like, I saw somebody suggest on um, uh, Twitter that Ari Oster would have a great time working with Will oh. Ferrell. And like, I would love to see that. Like, I think like people kept thinking that was going to happen with Jim Carrey. He was going to hook up with an exciting young indie filmmaker, revitalize his career, go to supporting. And it, he just never did. Like uh, Eternal Sunshine is the closest he got. Yeah, I mean, then there's things like him being in like The Bad Batch, mm-hmm. you know, uh, he's kind of fun in The Bad Batch. That movie stinks. Right, and then he did that weird fucking movie, Dark Crimes. I have not seen Dark Crimes. It takes a dark mind to solve a twisted crime is the tagline. What, what if there were dark crimes? I mean, they dared <laughs> ask the question. But I, I, I think I think it is harder to crystallize what his persona is that you can subvert 
into a more mm-hmm. serious minded movie, Emily, in the way that it mm-hmm. was like so clear what like if you take the Bill Murray thing and you put him in a more serious contra- uh, context, the overwhelming loneliness of this guy becomes very poignant, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think Farrell has those reserves in him that no one's really figured out how to properly use yet. Kerry is like best when he's doing sort of just maximalism. When, like, what you're watching him for is just doing everything. It's one of the reasons why this movie is so upsetting because it's the one time that he's seemingly holding back. Yeah. Uh, so when weird. there should be nothing keeping him in place. Um, I want to hear your your sort of big Zemeckis yeah. take. Before on we this, play the box yeah. office game, right. I feel like we just need to hear this and then flesh, you know, talk it out. I, uh, I, yeah, I, I was, I was thinking about this because when we were talking about the rich little Christmas carol, I was like, well, why didn't, you know, at this point in time, why not just get Robin Williams, have him play every part, have him do like a celebrity impression for every part. And it would just be like sure. a disaster, but you know, it would be more fun than this movie. Maybe but like watching- WC Fields is Scrooge. I'll just throw it in there. No <laughs> one's ever done that. Watching this movie, I was struck by Zemeckis' adaptation choices to play up at every turn the anti-capitalism message Mm -hmm. of A Christmas Carol in a way that usually does not get pulled into American adaptations of this story. It's usually like Scrooge just needs to be nicer and give more to charity. Right. He's too mean. Yeah. Zemeckis is, uh, I think watching it at this moment in history, I was like, Oh my God, this is like playing up the aspects of, of Dickens story that are like, you know what? We are only as good as the weakest people in society and we should work together to build something that doesn't give too many people too much money and doesn't give too many people too little money. And the stuff that Zemeckis keeps from the book, because he cuts quite a few things for all the, the hype that this got about, you know, this is a faithful adaptation. The stuff he keeps is all stuff like wanton ignorance. It's all stuff like, you know, really pulling, playing up uh, how Scrooge has lots of money and other people have no money and the, you know, the orphans and the collecting for the poor and all of this stuff. And that made me think uh, one of the things that has followed Robert Zemeckis around his entire career is, is he fundamentally a conservative filmmaker in political sense, or is he someone who is kind of satirizing that viewpoint, taking the piss out of that? The Gump question. I think A Christmas Carol proves that he is indeed fairly i don't think he's like as far left as like a george lucas but i think he's a fairly left-leaning filmmaker who really does kind of hate the capitalist system that has made him rich it is a thing i have been wrestling with these many months and the months ahead of us where like it, you know it's not it, months ahead it's it's month <laughs> this month ahead of us but right. uh I was watching his his early short films are on like the Criterion disc for I Want to Hold Your Hand. And they're the films that he showed to Spielberg that got Spielberg mm-hmm. on board being his mentor, setting him up with films. And the whole thing he liked about him was he was like, this guy is anarchic. Like he makes mm-hmm. these really radical, angry political comedies. He just likes chaos. And it does feel like there's a much clearer satirical edge to his movies early on that starts to fade away. And I think he starts to get pegged as being this very kind of like sappy populist sort of like sentimental mainstream guy. But he is clearly a very angry filmmaker. Like most (laughs) of his movies seem driven by contempt of something and then perhaps regret about where that anger led, you know? But they all have that sort of thing to it. And we talk a lot about him being like kind of the ultimate boomer filmmaker. But he also seems to be a guy who has a lot of hatred for everything the boomers wrought 
in yeah. society. Yeah, yes. I mean, I, not to relitigate Forrest Gump, but I, I that's that movie. That movie is about, um, I am a boomer, I love boomers, I fucking hate myself. I hate everything right. that I've done, right. you know? That's the conflict that makes that movie kind of difficult to untangle. Yeah. Right, and like, right. I found this quote that I read in the Contact episode about how he was raised super Catholic and then became super uh, uh, atheistic and then has spent like the later years trying to sort of untangle his earlier um, rebellion and find some sort of middle ground between the two. And he also falls in this category. I and mean, it's like two narratives that come up a lot on this podcast because of the kind of careers that we cover. One is filmmaker discovers some kind of technological breakthrough and becomes obsessed with pushing this boulder up a hill quote unquote for the next generation of filmmakers right this weird sort of like in the same way that Ang Lee has done with the high frame rate stuff Zemeckis at this time was always framing it as like I don't care if people don't like these movies I'm doing this for the next generation of filmmakers I'm doing all the R&D for the next generation to have these tools to play with there's that thing and then there's also the thing of I hate what all the film trends I started have wrought in, yes, in culture. very much so. Right. Like, he that, seems to have... Yeah, that grumpiness. Yes. Right. I, you know, Spielberg and Lucas, you know, all these guys where they're just like, ugh, look at all these movies now. These are all bullshit. Right. It, it's, it's an odd choice in that way to make A Christmas Carol that is, at this point in time in his career, to make A Christmas Carol that is so devoid of joy, of uh, humor... And is trying its hardest, if unsuccessfully, to forefront the sort of regret and the the literal horror of the story. Right. But if you view this as Robert Zemeckis being like, I am Scrooge and I ruined the world, like, I think that that is, um, I think that that's a take. You know, I think that he is really tapped into this idea of like, we need to like build something better. And like this movie becomes like kind of his Waterloo in that regard. And then he goes off and starts making like weird little kind of personal kind of not movies. And, you know, and Welcome to Marwin ends with uh, Steve Carell turning to camera and saying, eat the rich. Like, you know, it's 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 the <laughs> Marwin's crazy. <laughs> this movie is just so fucking boring. My final thought I'll say is like Tintin comes two years after this is the final gasp. I've said this before. But, like, I think so much of the success of Tintin is they find the exact right distance to push it into abstraction. So they overcome the uncanny value of being like, these are proportions that no human yeah. being has. This is not what a, the architecture of a face looks like. We're still going for a tactile quality in the animation and a realism in the performances, but we're not trying to replicate the way these actors' faces look in that kind of way. And they go a little bit into that with, like, I mean, obviously the stretching out of Carrie's limbs in this and his nose and his chin. But even, like, you look at the Ghosts of Christmas Past and it's just straight up Jim Carrey's face in a flame, right? Mm. You look at mm -hmm. the Ghost of Christmas Present and it's straight up just, like, it looks like Jim Carrey doing the promotional rounds for this movie trying to bulk up to play Curly. Uh, and then the Ghost of Christmas to Come is just... Apparently him motion capture performancing uh, the silhouette of a robe pointing at shit. Um, but point, there's that. He, he point. He point. He point. <laughs> there's the opening transition of the movie, I guess, after the opening credits, Zemeckis flying over the cityscape shit, where it goes from the book 
Or does mm-hmm. that come first, where it goes from the book? You look at the book, and then it goes into the city, and then it says Jim Carrey over footage of him wandering yes. around. But there's that transition where it goes from the illustration in the page of the book. Yes, it says I had this like too, Griffin. Right. And then the illustration becomes 3D, and then slowly the illustration transitions into this totally horrifying-looking Bob Marley corpse. Yes. Uh, Jacob Marley. What am I saying? Bob Marley. Bob I wish, Marley. <laughs> I wish Bob Marley was in this movie. I wish that had been his choice. I'm doing A Christmas Carol, but the ghost of Bob Marley is playing every character. <laughs> I bought the rights uh-huh. from the Marley estate. Um uh-huh. But, but I had this immediate thought of just like, oh, that was immediately more visually appealing than anything I've seen in any of these mocap movies. He was so weirdly committed to trying to bridge this gap between like, it's not animation, it's not live action, it has the qualities of both. That I just thought like, look, it's not going to fix the energy problems this movie has. But if this movie were done with like three-dimensional illustrations in that way. Uh, yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, I agree with this completely. It would have some I, fucking I, yeah. feeling to it. You, you're you like what you were saying about the Richard Williams version being the best one. It's like make it look like the fucking woodcuts yeah. from the book or something. Yeah, and that, that apparently was like their goal, which this looks nothing like. But right. yeah, it's uh, – I have seen so many Christmas Carol adaptations. I've seen so many that are worse than this one by several degrees. This is the one I least want to watch again. Like it's so – also, when Bob Cratchit turns toward camera at end and starts talking to it and reciting the famous oh. end of the book, it's terrifying. It's terrifying. The whole thing sucks. Uh, speed round some other things that suck. Uh, the entire Ghost of Christmas present sequence happens from one room. He just turns the floor into like a viewfinder so that they can look at other things happening. Like it's some weird uh, theme park ride. Uh the Fezziwig sequence, which he turns into hot chocolate, and the main uh, money shot of it is a woman twirling too hard and briefly becoming a helicopter through her skirt. Yeah. The uh, the one thing that I think really did, does succeed in capturing the book, again, is Tiny Scrooge. I'm glad it's in there, and I'm glad that Dickens' vision was realized. Finally, just just dancing on top of that bottle. Little Scrooge. It's always funny when uh, the high pitch, the the pitch up. It's always good. I, David pointed out that this is one of his only sole screenwriting credits, and I was like, "Yeah, but it's like he pretty much just copy pasted the book and then added in long screen descriptions of what when he shoehorned in chase sequences that must have ended with, "I promise you, this is going to look really cool." Uh, yes, exactly. Web and uh, also, I guess, I mean. Marley chain legend. I guess we should just shout that out. Oh yeah. I mean, the chain work is pretty good. You know, they're green. (laughs) That's cool. They're translucent, (sighs) you know, yeah. Dickens really invented something pretty magical, which is that ghosts carry around chains. And you know, I've, I've taken that and incorporated into my fashion. So, you know, I'll have wearable chains with my line that's coming out next year. Um, so look forward to that. Do you Very look forward? To, do you look forward to being a ghost because they'll just like give you some chains? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I assume that they 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 you you go and you get yeah. your chains and then they they assign you a place to haunt. Yeah, Saint, Saint Peter's like how many chains, Mister Hosley? And you're like all of all them. of them. It's like checking in on election day. <laughs> You go to the little desk and they're like, Hosley, Hosley, with an S or a Z. You go S and they go, great, here are your chains. 
we have to play the box office game. Uh, this is one of the crazier box office games okay. that I can remember. It's three. It's three movies where you're just like, holy shit. Um, number one though <laughs> is this is November six, two thousand nine. Number right. one is a Christmas Carol opening to thirty million dollars. Not yeah. great. Hmm. Not okay. Great. You know what are you gonna do? It ends up at one thirty. It ends up making one hundred and thirty-seven domestic, one seventy-seven international, three fifteen worldwide. Okay, but you know, maybe but not, it costs not, not, like two hundred million dollars. Yeah, and and it costs a ton to market. And Polar Express made more than that, you know, mm. five years earlier. So like, that's yeah. just not what you want to see. In any and way. this thing has um, certainly had zero shelf life. Zero. That's the other thing that it does not linger, does not become no. a classic um all right number two though okay okay um concert okay. movie uh has made 57 million dollars michael jackson's this, this is, is it michael jackson's this is it who could forget Holy that michael shit. jackson had recently died yeah when this movie came out and so they rushed uh, this is it the it's not even a concert movie right it's it's like a preparing for a concert movie it, right it is it's it's not even a documentary it's like it's got the shape of a concert film but it's put together from footage of him rehearsing a concert he never got to do because he died uh so weird i've never seen huge hit so $260 million dollars worldwide. Is it the whole is Michael it the biggest Jackson, concert movie of all time? It might be. Probably. Like, what it, would its, it's competition so be? I just remember there being like, Sony bought it for so much money and Deadline was doing these breathless pieces where they were like, no one knows how much this is going to make. Is it going to make $500 million? <laughs> like, there was just this feeling of like, and then people saw it and they were like, oh, it's really just watching rehearsal footage. Like, it's very mm. unexciting. There's a part where, because I'm such a big Jackson 5 fan, and there's a part where he goes into doing a medley of all the Jackson 5 songs. And I start getting so amped. And like 30 seconds into it, he goes like, hey, can we stop? I'm just like out of breath. <sighs> And you're like, oh, well, this sucks because I didn't see the thing I wanted to see. And also, this is more depressing now. My, uh, uh, yes, go ahead. I was no, just going to say, my, my primary memory of Michael Jackson's death is that he died while I was visiting my old German grandmother. And we went out to watch fireworks on the 4th of July. And people were playing Michael Jackson songs. And I was not aware that my German grandmother knew about Michael Jackson's death. But she turned to me and said, he's dead now. Very sad. And then she went back and got in the car because she didn't care about watching fireworks. Wow. So. I mean, no lies detected. He was dead. <laughs> it's true. I, uh, I, I was yep. in Paris when Michael Jackson died, and there were literally just people running down the streets holding bottles of wine and beer, screaming, Michael Jackson, il est mort! Il est mort! <laughs> I was over like all night as I went to different neighborhoods. It was a constant throughout the city. Number three at the box office. It's yeah. new this week. It's opening to $12 million. How Michael Jackson, to, no good, very bad. Don't do it. Sure, yes. How yeah. to describe, uh, hmm, I, I, I guess like a dark comedy. Um, dark comedy one of those movies that, to 12. No. I feel like okay. just saying the title is just a great movie just that does not exist like you know it, it, it's a great like uh filler title for any movie that does not exist huh big uh, cast big cast it's not holiday themed at all is it 
No, uh, it's not holiday themed. Um, it has a funny billing, funny billing where there's a someone's someone's getting the and credit, but it's it's not an actor. Someone is getting the and credit, but it's not an actor. Oh, already laughing. Not an actor. It's like actor, 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 and a doc. (laughs) You're close. You're close. Okay, so is it is the and the name of a proper character, or is it like a thing? It's an animal. It's an animal. It's an animal. And is the movie kind of like centered around the animal? Well, no, but like it's in the title. This animal is in the title. Animals in the title. I've never seen this movie. I've never seen this movie, and I love the star of it. I I love most of. uh, I love yeah a lot of the actors in this movie. One one canceled actor in this movie, but you know a lot of good actors. I almost find it unlikely that I haven't seen this movie. So is this like I don't know that you've seen this movie. Is this is the is the canceled actor Kevin Spacey? The canceled actor is Kevin Spacey. Hmm. Huh. It's a Kevin Spacey dark comedy. Uh, he's, fourth, he's fourth build. He's fourth yeah. build. Yeah. It's got right an ahead of the, the animal. <laughs> it's not nine lives. He's built one no. position ahead of an animal. <laughs> Was he in an air bud? Yeah, it's an air bud. No, come on. Come on. It's a, it's a serious movie. It debuted at the Venice Film Festival. It's got huge stars in it. It, it does not exist. It, it, it cannot exist. I saw it's this trailer like 50 times. No, it's like a comedy, but it's like it's like a dark satirical comedy for grown-ups. Wow. Spacey and animal. Can you give me the animal kingdom? It's part of <laughs> It's a hooved animal. I don't know. <laughs> it's a horse movie? No, it no, it's not a horse is movie. It, <laughs> is it a cow movie? Horse movie. Not a cow, not a horse. But, you know, another farm animal. Sheep. Uh, now this is getting fun. Now this is just an animal guessing game. Yeah. No, it's not a sheep. It's not it's a moose. Pig? It's a pig. Wait, wait. Mooses I, did I hear goat? Oh, pig. Did I hear pig. goat? Goat? Oh. oh. Is this the goat. men who stare at goats? The men who stare at goats. <laughs> so no wait, goats, shit. no glory. It's Clooney Bridges... Who's the one person I'm forgetting? Spacey Ewan and McGregor, Ewan goat. McGregor, Kevin Spacey, and Goat in <laughs> The Men Who Stare at Goats, a Grant Heslaw uh, film. You're you're right. That movie cannot exist. <laughs> I met I met Grant Heslaw once. Seemed like a really nice guy. Yeah, obviously George uh, when, Clooney's writing partner. When that movie was out, I doubted it existed. Like it, yeah. yes, right. Yeah, it's it's a I guess an anti-war comedy about. CIA or like US Army like psychological experiments right where they're like trying to make yeah. psychic spies I've never seen it I only remember the trailer and it's like a guy running into a wall or whatever right you know like it's like shit like that I, I have no idea what it's about I mean people you know like uh, Truman Show Syndrome is a serious thing I feel like uh, there have been psychological studies of generations of people post Truman Show grow up with the fear that their life is actually just uh some fictional reality for someone else to watch. 
And I felt that way anytime I walked by a men who stare at goats poster on the street. Because it was like, this is lazy set dressing for a movie that cannot come up with a fake movie to exist in its universe. The no. men who stare at goats. They stare. All right. The go- goats uh, that's enough the talk. Okay. The fourth movie is a sci-fi horror film. Sci-fi horror film, 2009. Yeah. Would you say more sci-fi, more horror? More sci-fi. <laughs> um, just one of those cheap-ass sci-fi horror movies that probably made a profit no one ever remembers. It, it's not the, the Dennis Quaid, Ben Foster one, is it? No. I believe, what's that called? Elysium? Is, no, wait. No, but it's something like Elysium. It's not Elysium. That's the Matt Damon thing. What the fuck is right. It doesn't matter. Anyway, no, it's yeah. not that. It's just a cheap-ass horror movie. It stars Mila Jovovich. Oh, um, fuck, fuck. It's got a cutesy sci-fi name. Yeah. You know, it's like a play on a, on a concept we would, we would be dimly aware of as a sci-fi concept. It's not ultraviolet. No, no. This is going to be tough. You guys are not going to get this. No, I think I gotta, I feel like I'm usually good at my Mila's. You got it. You're going to tap out? Do you have a guess, Emily? You looked like you almost had a thought. I had. I remember the poster for this movie, but I do not remember the title. Describe the poster to the me, poster. Emily. Give me the poster. Oh my god! Um, it's uh, fuck. It's uh, maybe I don't remember the poster. I think I'm remembering a Resident Evil poster. Shit. Um, Mila Jovovich yeah, not on the poster. To be clear. Oh, she's not. Okay. Well, there yeah. we go. Then I remember. The poster is yeah. someone being lifted out of their bed as if by an alien force. Oh, oh, oh! It's uh, it's not. Is it called the fourth kind? The fourth kind. The fourth kind. What if right, there it, was a fourth kind? It's an alien abduction movie, right? I believe second, so. Yeah, the second you said being lifted out, I was like, okay, yeah, that uh, that's okay. that. I that's I either think, the fourth kind or that one from like a few years later with Carrie Russell that I don't remember the name of anymore. Dark skies. Dark, Dark skies. skies. Dark skies. I think because a close encounter of the third kind is where you meet an alien, but a close encounter of the fourth time is where an alien abducts you. From your bed. Anyway, from your bed when you're sleeping. You remember that found footage movie set on the moon? What the oh. fuck was that? What uh, Emily, Sorry? what's that movie called? Apollo. What's the found Apollo, footage? Apollo 18, I believe. Yeah. It's, it's, mm-hmm. a, it's a later. Yes, right. Yes. Apollo 18. Uh, well, yeah. What if uh, what if we went to the moon and there was uh, a camera an alien? <laughs> uh, okay. Speaking of found footage okay. movies, what is number five at the box office? It's made ninety-seven um, million dollars in seven weeks. Paranormal, paranormal activity? activity. A little film called Paranormal Activity that rules. Love Paranormal time. Activity. Yeah. One is so good. Two is okay. Three is the best. Never saw the other ones. I've only seen one and three, but I agree that three rules. Three is so good. Three is amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Three rules. I should watch the other ones. Why not? Um, that is the box office for wow. this time. We've also got opening at number six, one of my favorite movies of 2009, Richard Kelly's The Box, which the we box. will one day do on this podcast, uh, which I love so much. Uh, you got Couples Retreat. What if there was a Couples Retreat? You got Law Abiding Citizen. What Another- if there was a Law Abiding Citizen? But Another like one. both of those big hits, like uh, like couples yeah, retreats, 
Vince Vaughn just snoozing his way to a hundred mil domestic. God, it's true. Vince Vaughn is like he he yeah he's like resentful that he's in that movie. It's so weird. Yeah, they literally like just this. went is to this Hawaii. What, is this what you want? Yeah, <laughs> right. It feels like a parody of an Adam Sandler premise. Right, right. It's like we gotta go to Hawaii. Why? Ah, for some kind of like couples retreat. Yeah. I, I don't know. My how. My hot wife hates me or something. I like that. Uh, I like Vince Vaughn has found his Wes Anderson and it's S. Craig Zoller. Like that's, yes. uh, that's. <laughs> I got to say Vaughn pretty good in Freaky. I gave him a good review for Freaky. Gave him good he's notices. Been, he's been doing good work. He's good in Hacksaw Ridge. He's good in fighting the, with my family. He's leaning the, into the right things right now. Oh, the thing about <laughs> Freaky is he's funny in it, obviously, because he's playing a teenage girl for most of the movie, right? Like it's a body mm-hmm. swap yeah. movie. But he plays a serial killer and you're like, yeah, Vince Vaughn, of course. Like that's good casting. He's, he's yeah. creepy and scary. And then like when he's being funny, you're like, Oh, right. I forgot that he was like a comedy star for 15 years. Right. He I forgot that he has that muscle. Right. A list comedy star. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> what a yeah. weird career. Um, but you want to talk about a great career? Emily Vanderwerf, one of the best writers <laughs> out there. One of I... our best guests, one of our favorite people. I want to I want to ask you because you're never going to do a Christmas Carol again because no other great directors have done a Christmas Carol. Yeah, I think so. uh, right. Who's 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 your director you'd like to see do Christmas Carol? Just just lightning round because I have an answer. I have just to make Griffin happy. So oh, well, got it. Got to hear the answer <laughs> to make Griffin happy. Who do I yeah, want to do a Christmas Carol. That's now that's I'm a looking. good question. I mean, I didn't watch the the FX uh, uh, oh, dark. Scrooge who fucks yeah. right but I am into the idea of someone <laughs> doing a harder edged Christmas Carol like that not an edgelord Christmas Carol but like the thing this movie occasionally toys with of just like what if you made it really fucking dark um you know I don't want anyone to do it but yeah like it'd be fun if like Mike Flanagan did a ghost story movie you know what I mean like right. if someone leaned more into the horror like, if you did like you know, a nasty like one million dollar haunted house Scrooge movie, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. What, what's your answer, Emily? Gendy Tartakovsky. Oh well, well that'll be fun. Okay, so that's that's a great pick. My pick was gonna be like the first thing that came to mind for me was like Paul King does a big family scrooge musical right like joe joe cornish like you know yeah. british right. guys with a good sense of comedy and visuals right. and you know yeah yeah but i'm also like i feel like uh muppet christmas carol scratches that itch for me it's a great christmas carol mm-hmm. musical with a great performance at the center and a lot of good comedy i now i like the idea of gendy just going fucking full tune on this thing yeah and Could he's Bobby a guy Blobby? Yeah. Bring in Blobby? <laughs> Blobby could be the oh, ghost yeah. of Christmas. You know, the, the, thing about, the thing about this is there's all these franchises that are like, we're going to do Christmas Carol because we got these recognizable characters. Hotel Transylvania Christmas Carol would work. Emily, that's such a good idea. That's such <laughs> a good work. idea. Drac, I mean, Drac is kind of a Scrooge sometimes. Yeah, you know, an HT4. I mean, if you're going to keep it going, you might as well yeah. just start being like, yeah, I don't know. We'll do a Christmas Carol. Yeah, I don't know. We'll do a. What's another like template you could shove it into? Yeah, that Hotel makes Transylvania sense. Treasure Island. Yeah, just do them all. <laughs> yeah, just make them the new Muppets. Um, uh, great, Emily, great is there anything specific you want to plug? Aside from the fact that people should just be following all of your work in general because yeah. it's always worth following. 
you can uh, find me yeah you can find me on twitter at twitter.com slash emilyvdw i am on vox all the time my newsletter is called episodes and uh as you listen to this the uh penultimate episode of the second season of my scripted fiction podcast uh arden is dropping tomorrow so check that out we have gotten awards nominations that means we're good Highly That's recommended right. and That's not to be competitive, works. but I want you to remember how this episode started and recognize that we might be nipping at your heels and the awards <laughs> categories next year. Peabody's coming. I remember. I've got my comedy points coin. I'm going to have a Peabody medal. Wow. Can you imagine? Oh, I've noted it. I've wrote down apply for Peabody, but hmm. you know, guys, I've, I queued this up in the polar express episode. I got to promote. Oh, oh. of course. The Emily, untitled slow Christmas album that I've put together. It's it's a slow Christmas album. Ben thinks that Christmas music isn't slow enough, so he's releasing an album. This is for real. That's going to drop this week <laughs> as so you're listening the, to this. The link will be in the show notes. Please, you know, it's free for everyone to listen and enjoy. I just can't believe that's real. That was the best <laughs> really Christmas good. music I've ever heard, Ben. You've it created a holiday classic. Thank you, Emily. That's I really appreciate as someone who this, loves Christmas that I take that in high regard. Yeah. This thing's gonna be huge. I'm just saying it's gonna, it's gonna it's, yeah. It's it's gonna get much bigger than our podcast. <laughs> right. It's gonna be like it's gonna be like the Buster Poindexter to our New York dolls. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Great reference, Chris. I love it. Yeah, okay. let's end it. Thank, thank you all for listening. Please remember to review, subscribe. Joe Bump, Pat Rounds for our reclaimer. Go for the theme song. Go to blanks.red.com for some real nerdy shit. Go to patreon.com slash blank check where we're finishing off the Alien franchise. Blank check special features. Uh, tune in uh, next week for a flight. We're going to roll it. And as always, on the 12th day of Christmas, <laughs> my true love sent to me. 12 podcast potting, 11 potters pipe potting, 10 Lord Pods potting, nine, nine pods. potties potting, 8 pods of potting, 7 pods of potting, 6 pods of potting. Come on, sing it with me now. Five podcasts. Four potting pods. Three, three podcasts, two podcasts, two podcasts, two podcasts, two podcasts, two